Welcome to the first Mile 27 podcast. My name is Annie Dubois and with me I have uh, Ben Duffus and Simon Byrne. How are you boys? Good, thanks. Pretty good, Matt. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Very well. So today's topic is going to be the long run. We're going to delve in deep to everything there is to know about the long run, from how long to the vert to how hard um, and every other question you can think about the long run. But before we delve into that, let's have a chat with the boys and see what they've been up to recently. Now, Ben, Ben's just come back from a few weeks ago, a, a fantastic win at the Six Foot Track Marathon. For those of you who don't know what this is, some of our international listeners may not know, it's probably the premier trail marathon in Australia where the, the, the best runners attend and you get a mix of Olympians to good trail runners like Ben. And Ben uh, had a fantastic race and took the race out. So I thought we might delve in a bit deeper to, to Ben's race and just get a bit of a feeling for how it panned out for him and uh, how it went. So first of all, Ben, from the start, the start, as you know, but uh, some of the listeners may not know, is a, is a long descent down quite a few stairs to eventually get to Cox's River. It takes roughly an hour, I think. How did the start pan out for you? Were you in the lead from the start or did Ben kind of take the lead, the other Ben take the lead or what happened? Yeah, so I hit the lead pretty much straight away. That that was kind of my intention. That as you mentioned, we go down Nelly's the staircase, which um, is only the first sort of couple of kilometres. But because it'd been raining all week, it was particularly slippery and like a waterfall. So I sort of was back myself and sort of my technical descending skills and sort of went right. Okay, I don't want to get stuck behind people on this where it is a bit slippery. I'd rather you know have a free rein to sort of set the pace. And obviously wasn't doing anything ridiculous in those sort of conditions. It was more just doing what you had to do to be out the front and holding it. Then after you get to the bottom of that, that's when the track then opens up into a wide fire trail for several kilometres. So that was where then uh, Ben St. Lawrence, who just mentioned the other Ben, he then uh, joined me and we sort of ran together all the way down to the river. Did you have any lead at all coming off the stairs or is it just behind you really? We were pretty much right together. That a perp, we were sort of all me, David Byrne, and uh, Ben St. Lawrence were all just sort of chatting, basically, yeah. as we were going down. That we were probably I wasn't looking behind, so I don't know exactly how much we yeah. were all within earshot. So probably within ten meters. Yeah. So you got to the river all together. That was kind of pretty much what we expected was going to happen. Feeling good at that point. Yeah. So. It, you're only uh, 15k into 45k run and it's all been downhill at that stage so yeah obviously feeling pretty good and yeah then have a nice refreshing swim across the river because as I said it had been raining the whole week so it was up to neck height at that point (laughs) (laughs) so the the climb next how long is the climb it's about six seven k's uh it's uh, a bit longer than that, I believe. I think it's all because you you go up, and then you have a decent descent in the middle, and then That's you right, start yeah. climbing so again, so that you're. Um, so about ten k, I think, because twenty five. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Okay, so the next section, you know, I coach Ben. For those of you who don't know, and Ben and I talked about the fact that um, the other Ben would probably want to pull away at this stage. Um, so how did that happen? Did he was it a gradual thing, or did he put on a bit of a surge on, or what happened through that section? So I was self-supporting, so I just blew through the aid stations every time, um, whereas Ben was going as light as possible, and he was then grabbing water at each of the aid stations. Well, not each of the aid stations, but, for instance, at Cox, that's where he filled up water. So I guess I had a tiny, tiny lead sort of as he filled up bottles right at the start, but it only took him a couple of minutes to catch me. 
And then we were only running together for a few minutes before he started to pull away. Could just sort of feel that, mm, nah, he's wanting to push this pace a little bit more than I am comfortable going up this hill because it's a very runnable, grinding hill for 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 us. Um, most, yeah, a lot of the people are hiking up this, but for us, it's a very, yeah, relentless sort of grinding, runnable climb. And that's really Ben's strength. So he was pulling away and I just thought, okay, back yourself for the... Uh, second half of the race, basically. So you got to the top of the first climb, then there's a bit of a descent. Did you make any ground on him there? Could you still see him in front of you, or how far? I couldn't was? see him at that stage from the splits I was being told, because there are aid stations every one to five kilometers in okay. this race, so you're getting a lot of updates. And from what I was told, I think I might have made up a little bit of time on him on that descent. And typically, that was where I would make ground on him. So probably reeled in thirty seconds or so in there, but. You it's sort of him. hard to say. No, I couldn't see him until almost the top of the climb. So in terms of not seeing him, how did you feel you know, mentally? Was that kind of like, yep, that's all good, I don't expect to see him, that's fine? Or was there a seed of doubt in that mind of yours worried about that? Or how did you feel? That was something I had specifically prepared for mm. in yep. before this event. That as we said, we, we had discussed that, you and I. I, I work with a sports psychologist. We had also sort of discussed that possibility, basically. And so the moment he did sort of start pulling away on that climb, I was prepared for that. And that it was then a case of, okay, I'm just backing myself and focusing on the process of executing the best race possible for me. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if he's the better athlete, then he's the better athlete and is going to win. And there's nothing you can do about that. You can only control your your own race. So it was very much there about focusing on what feels right for me, backing my experience there, and then focusing on, okay, what can I do to run as fast as possible? So you get to the top of the climb, and from memory, I think you're about 58 seconds down. Could I think you see 90 seconds. 90 seconds, was it? Yeah. So that's probably, what, about 300 metres? Could you see him ahead? Yes, just. Yeah. It would sort of depend on how straight the stretch of road yeah. was. That When you had a particularly straight, straight, straight stretch, <laughs> yeah, I could see him. As soon as you had a bit of a bend, would lose sight of him again. Yeah. And so that was kind of the fun game for the next hour, basically, of trying <laughs> to reel him in along the Black Ranges, which is... A lot flatter. It, it's sort of, it, it's a Stop real sort of douche gray that. climb. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. so. It's really, it's one of those things where going up, you just feel slow because it looks flat, but you're actually climbing. If you're coming the opposite direction, it feels amazing because it looks flat, but you're flying because you're actually going downhill. Um, and so we were going. So every time we'd sort of bend a corner, might see him be like, oh, I think I've made another five meters you know another corner oh i think i've made 10 meters this time and just sort of hoping that okay if i can just keep this going keep this going then eventually going to catch him which i sort of did um at the end of the black ranges around the deviation what what kilometer mark did you catch him at uh so that would have been around a bit after 35k i would say 35k you're now running with an olympian yeah 36 37 maybe So you're at 36, 37K, you've got 8K to go, you're running with an Olympian who you know is an extremely strong runner, but you've caught him. So how are you feeling at this stage when you, when you catch up to him? So I think at that point he was having a little bit of a rougher patch, so that certainly, you know, I was able to sort of make a definitive move as move past it yeah. while we weren't running together for too long. That was my question, I yeah. guess, And it's just in terms of... I mean, we're, we're, so we're mates, and so we're sort of both encouraging each other. I guess you sort of, to peel back the curtain in some of the mind games, though, as soon as he asked me if I knew where third was, you know that he's struggling. <laughs> cause if you're yeah. thinking about who's behind, that's yeah. never a good sign. Yeah. Um, that gives you confidence, so, though, doesn't it? 
Yeah, that gives me a look on. But also at that point, I know that, okay, I can't... If I have a rough patch now, then I'm going to lose this any any lead instantly. Yeah. Like, just... You, you can't start, you know, relaxing at that point. But you know that if you keep doing what you're doing, yeah. then it's going to... So when you well. caught up to him, you, you said you didn't run very long. Was it more a case of you putting a surge on to get a bit of a gap? Or did that just happen organically because he slowed down or...? Happened fairly organically. I think it was convenient that I passed him on a bit of a descent, which was naturally sort of my strength, that even when we were running together in that first part, uphills were usually where he would sort of be setting the pace, downhills is where I would be setting the pace. And so it was just fortunate timing, basically, that I could pass him on a descent and could quite organically sort of put in, yeah, pull away. Yeah, so then you've got a bit of a lead and you've got, what, 6k to go or something. So now just running for the finish line. Pretty much. So at that point, it gets a little bit undulating with a few small stairs. And it was at this point that I started to not quite cramp, but that feeling where the muscle's just holding on and you're sort of like, oh, this is almost a cramp. <laughs> so I, I, I knew I, I couldn't hear him in the background. As I said, there are so many uh, aid stations along the way that you can sort of when you pass through, you can then they'll cheer for you and then as you run away you're like okay are they you're yeah. listening out are they yeah. cheer are they cheering again no okay i must have at least a minute or so lead wow. and so i knew that i had that at that point so i was like okay it's in a the final 4k is a relatively steeper descent into the finish so i knew if i was cramping at that point it wasn't going to be pretty but i also knew that um i probably could pull away from ben if i had to so I did let off the throttle a little bit at that point to just conserve and make sure, play it safe yep. to run for the win. Um, and was just sort of thinking that, okay, if he catches me, then at that point you have nothing to lose. So you may as well at that point open yep. up and give it everything you've got. So cross the finish line. I mean, looking at the videos of you and the other Ben crossing the finish line and you looked pretty fresh. Um, didn't look like you'd run 45 k's hard and the other Ben looked like he just smashed himself. How hard were you pushing? Like, how did it feel those last 5Ks, 10Ks? Like, how deep did you have to dig and, like, how comfortable or uncomfortable was it? Because looking at you, and, you know, I know, and but you look at, you know, other people who may not get an appreciation for the level of athlete that you are and how hard you work, it looks like you were just cruising. But uh, we know that's probably not the case. It's one of those things where as soon as you have a downhill finish and you are purposely just holding back mostly that 1% or 2%, aerobically you know you're not at that absolute limit and so you it kind of makes you look like you're taking that much easier whereas if it was an uphill finish you always look absolutely yeah. wrecked at the finish because you are pushing aerobically that much harder what you can't see is how much how beat up your legs are no. that that's sort of yeah behind the scenes and you learn to sort of just smile through that <laughs> so the, the legs are pretty sore towards the end as I said, I was on the verge of cramping, so clearly they yeah. were fatigued and pushed to their limit. Yeah. It was, a, it was a really, really good run. It was so pleasing to see you, all that training pay off. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and in terms of that and leading into our discussion on the long run, just to, and we'll talk in more detail in a second, long runs to six foot, like what kind of long runs did you do um, and what do you think was the most beneficial from that point of view? So I guess it's worth noting for those who don't know the course, uh, it's 45k with about 1500 meters of climbing and 1600 meters of descending and i ran it in three hours 20 minutes so i guess that's sort of to put things in perspective which is only five people. minutes off the record just so people know on a, on a very hot human day and so my i had a good string of long runs from 
pretty much after Christmas of around three hours. Now I'm training in Brisbane, which um, around sort of subtropics and that, so it's quite hot and humid through that period. So that's about as long as I reasonably feel I can put in a quality. Um, what we're covering, long run. what we're covering, distance and vert wise for those. So it would vary a bit from week to week, but it was generally around the sort of 30 to 35k sort of mark, and trying to sort of have around four to 500 meter, generally around sort of 400 meters of vert per 10k within that. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And I think there was one, yeah, there was one three and a half hour run that was a, my longest run in the build up was, yeah, 40k with 1700 meters of vert. And you did uh, the week before six foot uh, break the Strava record for mega long mega as well, which was, how far is that, 30k? I'm clocked it at 34.6. Roughly. So my watch <laughs> tends to, I've, I've got my training peaks open so I can have a look at it. Exactly. Although I tend to measure it a little short. I think a lot of people seem to measure it closer to more 35, 36. So how did that feel in terms of, you know, we wouldn't often advise someone training for a trail marathon to do a a 36-kilometer run um, the week beforehand. Um, So how did that feel in terms of both the mega-long run and how your legs felt afterwards leading into six foot? Yeah, I I mean, it wasn't a flat-out effort, so I was fine the next day sort of thing it just felt like a standard weekly long run and and honestly it felt in one sense a lot easier than all the runs i'd been doing in the lead up because it was so So much cooler cooler (laughs) that well yeah temperature only maybe a few degrees cooler but just taking away that humidity so your sweat actually evaporates rather than just making your shoes heavy and squelchy is amazing (laughs) (laughs) it's uh yeah and that, that, I guess, to put in perspective for people, I have a few questions about the why was I doing that a week before that. That's because ultimately I was using six foot as a stepping stone towards the Ultra Trail 100k. And so I was looking to, while I was down there, make the most of my time down there and get in a bit of decent training. So it was sort of put in one decent long run a week before the race and then have an aggressive taper leading into six foot. Yeah, we, we knew, Ben and I talked about this and we knew that um, he could recover pretty easily from a long run like that. And and looking at uh, the bigger goal of UTA, that was a, a better way to go. And look, it paid off on race day. Ben had uh, all the legs he needed to take the win in, in a crack in time. So, uh, fantastic run. Brilliant. Now, Simon, um, you're not, Ben's not the only one doing uh, fantastic things. Simon, for those of you who don't know, lives up in Byron near me. Um, and he had this crazy idea of running around the Mount Warning caldera, uh, which is 251 kilometres is that correct, Simon? Roughly? Yeah, pretty close to. Uh, it, taking into account the GPS kind of bounces around a little bit. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, give or take. You'll have, you'll have to do it again with a trundle wheel to make sure you get the exact distance. <laughs> I think, yeah, and anti-clockwise, I think, too. <laughs> <laughs> so Simon took this on over Easter, I think, wasn't it, Simon? Easter weekend, yes. Easter weekend. So yeah, 250 k's. Now, for those of you who don't know the trails up around this area, they're, they're not the UTA-type trails there. I mean... A lot of Simon's long runs, to give you an example, he went out with a machete, um, which just gives you kind of a bit of a headspace in terms of what the trails are like. Um, but first of all, Tom, before we talk about long runs for that, can you just tell us about the, well, how, how it panned out and what it was like and how you went and just give us a bit of an overview for, for what you did then? Because it was an amazing run. Amazing. It's, yeah, it's, it's something that I've, since I've, I mean, I've lived in this area for 14 years and it's just something that's there that I just see all of the time and think that is something that I want to do. And I guess it's 
through training and running in, in different sections of it, we realised, a few of us, that actually a lot of it was possible to link up and I just don't think that anybody had really done that before um, and not that lots of people would even want to do that but um, <laughs> at the same time it, it, it's just such a beautiful to, to do the when you look at it from a satellite and look at it from above and you see Mount Warning in the middle and you've just got this kind of this caldera cauldron that goes around it you know it's collapsed in one side where where obviously the, the river runs into the ocean but it it's just there to be done and I it's uh, for me it's it's got a real sort of special sort of magnetism that I just can't stop thinking about as since I've done it I'm still thinking about it <laughs> and um yeah I, I think there are a lot of old logging tracks and old bushwalking tracks up there which are overgrown but but do exist and even on some of the old maps they kind of say well you know unknown or you can't and surprisingly there's a lot of stuff up there that that isn't as bad as people imagine so to be able to to link it all up and and get around it it was it was something that was it's just always been like the mission to be able to do and initially i don't think we really appreciated how far it could be it was whether it would be 200k or 180k or what the elevation would be because until you actually go and do it it's it's it's, it's hard to gauge that from the maps and, and some of the some of the ridge lines end up being you know with ledges which maybe you're only one or two feet wide and you're kind of like scaling around them to get around them or very very narrow ridges that you've got to climb across but yeah just exciting and in adventure it was kind of the the mission with covid was less access to races um and it just there was a kind of a I, I hesitate to use the word perfect storm because when the rain came in it, it did become a bit of an issue but it, but just that the, the scenario where I've always put the idea off because I have a race on the calendar that I'm looking forward to doing. With less races that I was kind of looking towards doing, it was, it's just thought this is the perfect time to do it. And not just myself, but also a, a friend, Hunter Dodds, um, was, was keen to get involved and, and sort of map it and, and train with me and, and, and put it together. So, um, yeah. Uh, so how long did it take you? Fill us in. The short answer is 64 hours. Um, a lot, lot longer than we intended it to be. To, to those who um, don't know the terrain, it's as Simon alluded to, it's very, very rugged. Um, and that that sixty whatever hours included some uh, hanging by the side of a cliff, sleeping through a night, I, I believe, um, cuddling up <laughs> to some others for, for body warmth. If you could just fill us in with that pearl of a story. It actually did. Yeah, I mean, it was the funny thing is. But, and it, it, was a, it was a slight, there was a bit of a shame in the fact that, that Hunter and I had always intended to complete it and do it together, um, barring an accident or something or, or one of us not being able to continue. And the short is that, that that's actually what happened to Hunter. After an amount of time, he, he'd said that, you know, the, the, the weather was coming in and things weren't going well for him. So I had a couple of friends that were in a section which, refer, which is referred to as the Lost World. It's just like a jungle section on the, the Western Caldera Wall no settlements no people not it's very very remote and i had some friends a couple who were camping up there um matt and jackie and um they pretty much had gone up there for a nice romantic went, uh, weekend camping <laughs> we're going to do a little bit of running had some kit to run but had my drop bag and um when i got to them i said well pretty much i'm on my own now and it's a bit dodgy going through this next section oh well we'll join you for the next you know what will it be i said well maybe six ten hours 
we didn't really see the weather coming in as badly as it did and as far as just having the mandatory equipment that we always complain about it would have definitely been better uh, head torches because it went for longer than expected that once we got to pass what's referred to as the stinson track um their head torches were getting dim and it were right alongside the caldera wall there's when a tree falls down out there it's not just a tree it's a whole like ecosystem that comes down you've got all sorts of vines and stuff and it can be 20 meters wide it's, you can't find the path so those guys eventually they said well our head torches essentially went out and and we're gonna have to stop and wait for light now as we any kind of endurance race i, I you know a 20 minute sleepover is the most i would ever think about doing and i found that very hard to switch my head around and then i said well how long is it till light and they said five hours and i was like no 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 that's way too long um but with a lack of reserve batteries and head torches which you could say is bad preparation but it was just with we've had that super wet last few months and just the vegetation had grown back in a way that we hadn't really accounted for and uh, so yeah we ended up sitting down quite politely and then gradually shivering and then gradually cuddling into each other and then before we knew it the three of us were literally spooning for five hours one of us would occasionally say can we move to the other hip now and we'd all roll over to the other side and cuddle the other side and it was literally it was that kind of feeling of getting as much skin contact um, as you possibly could in like those survival videos that you may see you think oh would you do that you certainly yeah. would it was the only way we could keep warm <laughs> So, so, most... so they got the romantic weekend they wanted. Well, yes, uh, I didn't expect them to be in to the be middle of, of the threesome. To be quite frank, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying that because we've had a lot of we've had a lot of laughs and a lot of jokes talking about it. Um, but yeah, absolutely. When you talk about people helping you and crew doing things for you, above and beyond does not go close to describing what those two people did. They ended up being out there for more than 24 hours, soaked from head to toe. Um, as long as we were moving, we were okay. But if we stopped for any amount of time to get around obstacles, climb over things, we were shivering and I forever grateful. Forever grateful. So, <laughs> so most people in that situation would just be looking for the nearest exit and go, right, this, this is it. This is silly. I'm just going to pull out and um, you know, save it for another time. So what was in your head? Why? Where did that motivation go? You know what? This is just an obstacle I need to get over. This is just something I need to find a way to, to sort out, to overcome, rather than pull the pin? I think that knowing that I had a lot of people out there helping me definitely given me a bit of a confidence to do it. And I, I think that, in, in a sense, because it wasn't a race, in the sense that I've done in the past, the time issue was less of a stress or a pressure on me. Um, there were a couple, there was very, very few up until that point, there was zero exit points anyhow. Maybe when we woke up in the morning, we went for a couple of hours and then there is a an exit path that could take you to a place called O'Reilly's. Um, but that was never in my never mind. Discussed. It was not really discussed. Uh, yes, it, I think. And had the had the terrain not got more passable, because it does at that point, there's, there's more people that move from O'Reilly's up to where we were. Um, and more importantly, I did, there would be an arrogance to continue doing something if you were also going to put other people in danger. Yeah. It, there's one thing to do something silly yourself, but to put others in danger, that's what I didn't want to do. Um, 
but as far as wanting to keep going and, and, and do it, we'd kept it quite a secret up until that point. And my, one of my own worries was the cat was out of the bag because we were doing it. And I wanted to make sure that I did do it so that I didn't fail. And then somebody else does it at a later point. <laughs> so in a sense, it was, it was very much about wanting to complete the, the circle. As we know, there, there was a slight adjustment that had to happen at the end because the rain yeah. was, we were expecting two, 300 millimetres of water coming in the next day and we did have to make an adjustment to the course. Um, Which takes nothing part. away from the achievement because it was still still a lap, it was just a slightly different route on yes. road rather than running up a river, up, up a waterfall basically. I think I think the threat of the gorge and the waterfall that goes up to Springbrook and um, the Kugels, um, there's a couple of waterfall areas that we have to go up. And to take, again, it was to take other people who were going to pace me up there. Um, it was too dangerous. It was it, it was something that I was I was devastated that we couldn't do it. But my ego had to, you know, had to take a step back and say, you know, it, this is just running at the end of the day. It's it's not somebody's life. It's not life and death, you know. So, yeah. But, yeah, but it was something And as something far else. as we're aware, you're the first person to have done this route, correct? In which case, you get to define the route. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That, that, that's what I'd like to, yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing, so we have defined that, but I would like to think that in the next few months, genuinely, I go back up there and do it again, and complete the, the planned route that I've got in my head, which, which doesn't, the whole point of it was, was to not fall inside the Caldera Wall, and for that section, for that last 20k, we did have to, I do like to think in the next few months, I would go up there and, and do it again, um, it's on my doorstep, I'd like to do it again, um, and I think if we're going to do it again, you're on the record now. We might, we might as well do that. We might as well do it anti-clockwise, just to say that we went that way as well. <laughs> so Simon, long runs. I mean, I know obviously I coached you as well, so I know what long range you did. But your long runs were very, very different compared to what to a Ben did. You had a, quite a contrast in your long runs. Would you care to explain how you train for a 250k event in terms of the long runs? Yeah, like you say, my approach was was very different to to what my approach has been for for lots of other races. Obviously, races, I would say, is you know something where you would be going against time or other people. But for this one, I was probably you, have, you know we were doing maybe two, four, five hour hikes um, in the week because I was I had the time to be able to do that in this lead up, and then as far as a long run went, we were sticking it to around about the two hours really and and just keeping that fire trail as we would refer to it or even road running just actually having a nice two hour consistent no hiking no relying on running run um and you know so maybe covering 25 k's in a couple of hours was was the limit of my running but in in conjunction with that i was doing um on a weekly basis probably four or five hour just hikes, walking, as much you elevation did quite a as few, possibly Didn't you go could. out and do quite a few recce's of like eight, ten hours, at least a, a oh, few Oh, well, yes. And the, the recce's yeah. themselves obviously were because often we could only, because you couldn't go from point A to point B, you had to go halfway between and get back to your car. Inevitably, the three to four hours that we wanted to get from this point to that ended becoming double that because we had to get back to the car. So, yeah, there was, there was at least four, I'd say... Eight, nine, ten, one was a twelve hour. But again it's that level of intensity. It's not the same as going yeah. and running. We were no. we were hiking a lot. We were moving quickly, as quick as you could across that type oh, of terrain. Because yeah. you literally can't run. It's too many twists and turns, there's too many climbing over stuff, it's too much climbing over stuff and and, 
and, and things like the kind of vegetation that you have up there that just rips your skin apart. We, we've heard things like wait a while and lantana, kind of invasive species, but you're just ripping your legs up and as well as, you know, families of leeches that sit between your toes and socks and things like that. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we found with Simon that um, because of the terrain, he just couldn't do that much running. So if he wanted to condition his legs to handle the extra resistance that a two, you know, two, two and a bit hour road run was, was a far better way to get the legs conditioned combined with that. So a bit of a different approach to you know, a typical 100 miler, but you know, yeah. as we'll talk about later in, in the podcast today is, you know, your long run needs to be specific to what you're training for and loading the legs in that particular way. So we'll, we'll delve a bit yeah. deeper in that um, a bit later on in the podcast today. Thank you. And how about you, Andy? What have you been up to lately? I know you've been sort of gradually building things back up. You always have uh, ambitions for some sort of adventure. So what have you been yeah, doing? Yeah, what's on the cards? So, yeah, as you know, those of you who know me well will have known two young kids. Um, training has been patchy at best for the last six years almost. I mean, I think... I think in the last six years I've only done two ultras and one trail race. Um, when the preceding six years I did a miler or two every year, so it's it's been it's been challenging, um, as any parent of young kids will know. But you now my youngest is three now, so he sleeps through the night most nights. So I finally managed to get some consistency back. And geez, I'm a long way from where I used to be. I mean, and I, I used to run four and a half minute k's cruising very very comfortable, and now it's more like five and a half minute k's. Um, which, you know, is, is part lack of training, is part getting a little bit older. Um, but the egos had to be put aside, and it's, it's been really a case of, you know, the last two months, three months, um, it's been really consistent for me. I've run six, seven times a week. Pretty much all easy runs, like I've, I've rarely pushed hard at all. A few just fast-to-finish ones when I've felt like it. Back up to about 70K this week. Um, and feeling pretty good for a change. Still a long way from where I want to be. But, you know, as we know with endurance, you've, you've got to start, be patient, and just keep putting in the work. And for me, I, I haven't set any races because I don't want to say, okay, I want to do a race in August and then adjust my training around the race. I want to keep the training adjusted to what my body feels like it wants to do and it's mm-hmm. capable of doing, rather than risk doing a 20K or a 25K or a 30K, pick up some niggles, lose a couple of weeks of training, then my kid gets sick, and then I lose another week's training, and then it's three weeks of bugger all training, and I've lost all the fitness I had, and I'm back to square one again, which has been incredibly frustrating. So the approach this year is just to get consistent and build the runs back up. In terms of what I want to do, yeah, look, with COVID, it's kind of wrecked any plans that I had. I mean, last year, um, you know, we were overseas for the first part of the year, and the aim was to go to Norway and do a race, and... There were some ideas of doing a doing a run in Iceland, even some ideas of doing Tour de Jones. Obviously, those are all out the window for, for a couple of years. So I don't know. I'm really not sure we're racing in Australia. I kind of, you know, I'd love to do GCR, but I think I'll just build the next three months and just just see how the legs respond, and then see you know when I feel like doing a race again. Um, but I'm just happy just happy running daily now. It's it's, it's yeah, it's good to get yeah. some consistency in. And so you don't have any particular numbers in mind that, oh, once I'm hitting this sort of weekly mileage, then I'll think about races. It really is just a case of keep building and when the excitement is there, then you'll yeah, look, sign up. I used to run, like when I was training for UTMB and Hardmores in, in the UK, and I was doing 120, 130k a week uh, in the in the busy periods, peak training and feeling good. Um, I, I don't think I could probably handle that now. Back then I was you know working full time, no kids, 
um, plenty of free time. I don't think I can handle that volume now, but I think I could handle 90, 100k a week. Um, so I think for me to feel like I'm, I'm getting close to looking at a race I'd want to be doing, you know, 90k-ish consistently and a long run of 30-ish consistently, um, to feel like I could give the race a, a decent crack. Like, I'm not going to win anymore. Like, you know, the competition's moved on and I've got older and training's not going to be what it was, but um, I still like to feel like I can compete within myself in terms of, you know, I don't, I don't want to do a 100 miler and get to 120k and feel like, okay, I'm done now. I just need to walk the rest because I haven't trained enough. I want to be able to feel like I can race the whole 100 miler relative to, to the fitness I've got. So, yeah, it's just going to be build patiently, be consistent, um, and then when, when I feel like I've, I've got that really solid base of the fitness, start looking around for races, and we'll see what happens from there. You've mentioned 100 milers a couple of times. Are you really thinking that probably 100 mile plus events are what, that, that's what it'll take to get to sign up for something? Not that interested in doing some half marathons, 50Ks um, or stuff like that? Yeah, look, I did a 25K a couple of years ago and quite enjoyed that. I think I'd only ever use those as kind of training races. Like, I don't think I'd ever have a, a goal to smash out a hard 50K or even 100K. I'm not particularly keen on, except if it was something special like, you know, Cradle Mountain Ultra, for example, you know, you tour a particular part of Tasmania. Um, so if it was, if it covered an area, a country or a, a terrain that I was really keen on exploring, then I think I might go shorter. But for me, I know my strengths are, you know, suffering for long periods of time rather than going hard. <laughs> it, always, it always has been. You know, I, I started endurance races doing Ironman and I went from not doing triathlons to doing Ironman in the space of kind of, a year and a half, despite all the overwhelming <laughs> knowledge. Dude, you know, spend three or four years doing Olympic, then half Ironman. I said, I don't want to do that. I just want to do Ironman. So I know, I know what my strengths are. And that's going long and suffering for long periods. Um, and that's what really you know, motivates me to, to train for it and to do so. I think if I did anything short, it would just be as a training race leading up to that. That's just me. That's not saying, you know, 100 mile is any better than 100K, you know. Any 50k is an ultra. It's all, it's all, it's all just whatever floats your boat. So uh, I, I get really annoyed when people think, um, you know, people talk about, oh, when are you stepping up? It's like, well, why should you step up? Like, if, if you're happy running 50k's, run 50k's. Don't feel like you need to step up to 100, thinking it's it makes you a better athlete. It doesn't. It, you run what floats your boat. You run what motivates you. Simon, you had. Uh, I was just curious to know because obviously you said 100 miles and stuff, but. It- the type of 100 miles or the type of races that you just mentioned, they're just not, they generally don't sound like they're just very runnable, easy fire trail. You're talking about what sort of 100 milers are you, are you kind of, or that sort of event? What sort of terrain is it that you really like? To, to be honest, the terrain doesn't really fuss me. I mean, the ones I've yeah. mentioned have been more technical and mountainous, which isn't really mm. my strength. Like, you know, if I was to pick a 100 on my, my race that suited my strengths, it would be a more runnable Right. Um, 100 miler because um, I'm a decent climber my technical descending you know I remember Ben and I went up to Mount Warning once and Ben left me for dead but was kind enough to wait at the top of Mount Warning and then um, we headed back down now those of you who don't know Mount Warning the, the, the last little bit at the top of Mount Warning is extremely steep rocky and there's chains there to help most people climb up um, and I usually kind of slide down on my bum a little bit and kind of you know gingerly get my way down and so we headed back down and I reckon Ben was out of sight within like 10 seconds and had kind of run down this like, it's not possible to run down. Oh, oh, okay, it, it is possible to run down there. Um, so 
my strengths aren't steep technical downhills, but I, I'm drawn to that kind of terrain. Um, I've done a stack of hiking in um, Peru and Bolivia and Nepal and Morocco and India and places like that. I'm always drawn to that kind of terrain. But look, there's, I mean, there's a race in Finland, for example, um, which is 100 miles. I think they've even got a 300k one now. And I'm quite drawn to the, the remote kind of Scandinavian um, terrain, which is a lot more runnable and a lot less technical. So it's more the kind of the nature of the terrain and, and feeling of being in wilderness okay, that yeah. really appeals to me rather than yeah. steep, rocky kind of stuff um, per se. Um, which is why, you know, in Australia, there's not a lot of stuff that really kind of really excites me. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think I was there that day, you saw Mount Warning, actually. I think I saw you at the bottom. Yes, you did. Yeah, yeah. It was a strange me, coincidence, but I rex, you were chatting at the bottom and I was doing yeah, my yeah. third rep, I think. <laughs> yeah, you were. <laughs> That's right. All right, enough about us now. I think the, the listeners might want to hear a bit more about uh, the long run. So before we delve in deep in terms of training uh, for long run, let's talk about why you should do a long run in the first place. Like, why don't we just do 15Ks every day of the week uh, and you know, you'd cover 95Ks for the week, um, 105Ks for the week. Why do we need to do a long run? So I'm going to hand it over to Ben who's going to talk us through some of the key reasons for doing a long run and then we'll get more into the hows and how longs and how fast, etc. Ben, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's certainly interesting where they mentioned just the general weekly volume that, to be honest, that probably is one of the most important things in terms of the long-term development for endurance athletes is what is that weekly volume rather than having these big massive sessions um so part of it because also then then come down to the logistics of that people have more time on the weekends to do a bit more mileage but there are then also some benefits by pushing that little bit longer so obviously at this sort of uh duration there haven't been a lot of studies that test what exactly is going on inside the body and how it adapts to different durations of one hours two hours three hours four hours five hours plus of running so in terms of looking through the literature of what is going to be beneficial we do have to kind of uh make some inferences and uh yeah this comes in the art of coaching but certainly a big component is the aerobic adaptions that we're developing the aerobic system and this is something where the duration it's not quite as clear as there a saturation point in terms of any longer than this you're not getting much more benefit but certainly we know that looking at some of the adaptions where for instance your capillarization of the uh muscle fibers so how well you deliver blood and oxygen to them that you're looking at around 50 to 75% of VO2 max is the best sort of intensity. And what sort of is interesting there is that it's the prolonged shear stress on the muscle fibers is what tends to stimulate that adaption, which means that you don't, by going at these easier paces, you're not actually just working sort of your lower threshold and slower um, uh, twitch fibers. Actually, that all muscle fibers are getting a similar sort of stimuli from that and so you do actually see increased capillarization in all muscle fibers at these lower intensities just to interrupt for a second ben just just so an example of that um as i said before i've kind of very rarely run anything faster at all in the last three months but i have done one harder run which is up a gradual hill just once every kind of six weeks to test where i am so i've done no speed work at all um and i've gone from running this particular run five k's in just under just over five minute k's and did 8Ks just the other day at 4.50. So with no speed work at all, I've added 3Ks and dropped about 15 seconds per K off my, my time. So we need to get out of our heads that 
easy running doesn't help us run faster because it does. It's just a question of how much of that you do and you know, can we increase that by doing speed work. But easy running, there is certainly a big benefit in terms of all speeds, not just at slow speeds. Sorry, Ben, continue on. Well, yeah, so that's to keep it like, there's also a similar sort of intensities you are uh, around 55 to 75% VO2 max, good for increasing myoglobin, is the best for increasing myoglobin content. So that's just an oxygen binding molecule found inside uh, your muscle fibers. Similar mitochondrial development in terms of both biogenesis and efficiency. Again, looks like around 65 to 75% VO2 max. And similarly, again, for increasing fat metabolism. So when we're running, we're burning a combination of fats and carbohydrates and training these lower intensities, we can typically shift towards burning more fats, which is beneficial because we essentially have an unlimited supply of that. Yep. And so that's, again, around 60 to 75% VO2 max. Another one then, speaking of sort of your fat and carbohydrate adaptions, a big one is uh, glycogen depletion. So it takes a while, essentially, to deplete the glycogen stores and once you essentially are finishing a run in a low glycogen state, so particularly here focusing on muscular glycogen rather than liver glycogen, once you're sort of around uh, probably some sort of threshold, around 100 to 300 millimole per kilo, um, that seems to be about sort of the sweet spot for stimulating uh, the body to store more glycogen and essentially use it more efficiently. So... Again, to put that in perspective, those sort of intensities we're talking about, around 70% VO2 max, it would take you about two hours of running at that intensity to deplete those stores. If you're a fitter athlete, it might take a little bit longer or you'd have to be running at a higher intensity. So again, that, that's sort of a general ballpark number there. They would take at least two hours. And I guess probably one question people have, does it matter if I'm taking in carbs during the run? Uh, carbohydrate ingestion during the run doesn't actually change the uh, rate of glycogen consumption that uh, much it will mean that you'll now be burning a combination of endogenous and exogenous uh, carbohydrates but actually you're still burning through the glycogen even when at a similar rate even though you're taking in those extra carbs you can just run a bit faster and probably feel a bit better <laughs> um yeah a big one for people the musculoskeletal system so people often talk about building up your strength uh, with these long runs. Now, in terms of strength is always a funny word that gets thrown around. Uh, if you use it in the gym, it will typically refer to one RM, so your one rep max and your maximal strength. Uh, long runs aren't great for developing that. I wouldn't recommend a th running a marathon to increase your bench press uh, max. <laughs> <laughs> but you will... so. Anyone who has run a lot of downhill will be very familiar with sort of delayed onset muscle soreness and the how beat up your quads yeah. are basically <laughs> afterwards. But that then induces what we call sort of the repeat bout effect where you go do the same thing again a week later or it can be up to several weeks, in fact, and you'll pull up much less sore. So really that is sort of the strength that we're looking at. How exactly the repeat bout effect works is actually an open area of research that so there's a lot of... Uh, possible mechanisms which that could be a whole podcast in itself but essentially that here that's how we're building up that strength is that we are increasing to that muscular endurance and that we are uh, becoming essentially more resistant to that sort of damage induced by running those longer distances in terms of bones tendons and ligaments there actually that's not so much something where the long run is your primary stimuli because they actually saturate their uh, training response very early bones probably within a hundred loading cycles you've pretty much saturated that response and then there'll be about an eight hour refractory period before you can 
uh, stimulate that training response again. Tendons and ligaments, fairly similar, that probably within about 10 minutes, you've saturated that training response. And then it's about a six hour refractory period after that. So that's actually where you need to be quite careful in terms of injury risk that if you're sort of taking the weekend warrior approach of you just do one or two big, massive long runs uh, and that's it, you're inducing a lot of damage to these bones, tendons, ligaments throughout this. The whole time you are breaking down these structures, but you're only giving them a stimuli to get stronger for the first 10 minutes or so. And so that's where actually that's why that weekly, um, that, that frequency of training becomes really important that you have maybe there, if you look at that, maybe a 10 minute window twice a day on which you can possibly stimulate those adaptions. Well, if you're only taking two or three of them by only training two or three times a week, then you're really missing out on a lot of the potential adaptions. And ultimately for endurance runners, that's where a lot of their injuries happen, are yep. the connective tissues and the bones. So yeah, for that, that's where you need to be very careful here of weighing up injury risks. A big one for ultra endurance runners is gastrointestinal uh, <laughs> training. Because across the board, all studies looking at why do people uh, DNF yeah. and what struggles do people have in races, consistently nausea, vomiting, gastrointestinal distress, top of the list. So that is a huge one that you need to... Um, train the gut. Fortunately, like everything, it is trainable. Yeah, that's what, uh, that's one thing where, you know, you say, you know, all the research kind of says about two hours is, is the mark, but as anybody who's run two hours or longer will know, the first two hours, your stomach's fine. <laughs> it's not an issue at all. Yep. You know, for most people, it's not till they get three, four, five, six hours into it that their stomach has any issues whatsoever. Um, and we'll talk about stomach and, and long run a little bit later. Um, but yeah, that's, that's certainly a big, big factor yeah. in the long runs and that's one where again the research there hasn't been looking so much at you know how long you need to be adapting to get the optimal stimuli to train the gut we do know that you know it takes around sort of tooth that if you're exposing yourself regularly to consuming uh you know whatever your race nutrition is whatever your target courage are carbohydrates there are for two at least two three hours on a regular basis there certainly seems to be positive effects from that but in terms of as Andy just hinted there, what works well for two hours may not work well for 10 hours. So the from there, it is a bit of a perspective from identifying potential problems. The longer, the better, because the longer you go, the more likely you are to have issues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess a big, so we focus really here a lot on uh, physiological adaptions, psychological, huge one. Mm -hmm. Um, so much of uh, ultra running is mental. Again, not a lot of studies looking directly at these effects, but this is more where we're going off anecdotal evidence. Where really, again, it comes into a bit. Probably in this case, it is a bit longer. The longer, the better. In that, uh, you need. To, uh, ultimately, if you wanted to give yourself the confidence, you can run a hundred miles. Well, <laughs> the best way to do that would be to uh, run a hundred miles. Yeah. Now, for the reasons we just discussed before, that probably isn't a, a good idea. That's going to take too long to recover from. But that, that's sort of just highlighting my point there. The longer, the better in terms of uh, this, experiencing the psychological challenges that you're going to face for that exact distance. Yeah, I think the psychological one is one that's underestimated. I mean, I know for my first mile, uh, my longest run, I think, was seven hours. Um, which in hindsight was probably too long and we'll talk 
a bit more detail about why that might have been too long later. But even then, you know, when you when you head off at a hundred miler and you're kind of like four or five hours in, and you think, you know, I'm getting close to my longest long run ever, and I've still got 10, 15, 20 hours left to go. It's it's very very it's very much in the mind in terms of having that confidence to go. You know what? Although my long run's only been five hours. I'm confident I can run for 25 hours. Mm -hmm. That's a big jump mentally, and you've got to have a lot of confidence in yourself and your training and um, belief in yourself to be able to do that. And I think that only comes from, you know, you can't just do one long run and get that. And repeated long runs, not super long runs, but repeated long runs, and you know, the volume you run during the week will help you with that confidence that, you know, okay, I might only be running 90k a week, and my long run's only 35k a week, but I know I can run 160k's. Um, it takes a while to build that mental confidence, without a doubt. It's underestimated in the, you know, analysing how long a long run should be and the benefits of that long run. And again, that's where experience, though, can come in that obviously the first time you quote-unquote step up, yeah. as we just said before, to a new distance, that it can be quite intimidating. Obviously, once you've done that before, you can at least draw upon that experience and go, okay, I know that I've done this before. And that's where sometimes those really long runs, the more experienced you are, the less you're potentially going to get out of it because you're still not going to be pushing that, yeah, that 25 hours in training. So Simon, what was your, what was your longest run for the 250 in kilometers? 30? Actual run run? Actual distance, yeah. No, just distance covered. You didn't cover more uh, than about 30 or 40? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it was, yeah, it was just more about getting through the terrain. Um, yeah. And it, so, they, so yeah, from that point of view, entirely different to training for a hundred mile race. Um, but yeah, it was completely different. It's, the, the distance wasn't the thing; it was the time. But when you look at the percentages, like in terms of you took sixty hours and your longest run was what eight or something. You know, uh, well, there was one. There was one that was a twelve hour. <laughs> twelve thing. So that's only what uh, still what twelve and a half percent. Under a fifth. Yeah. 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 So yeah. It's, it's still a very small percentage. So I think you know, having that confidence in yourself that your long run is long enough is something that comes from a, a real continual, consistent training approach. Or hopefully you've got a good coach and you you know you listen to your coach and your coach says, look, all the other athletes I coach, their longest run is four hours. You can yeah. do 100K on four hours. You know? yeah. Plenty of other athletes yeah. do it. So, yeah. And well, as we just earlier discussed there, so the two, the two events we just discussed earlier there, for me, six foot track, 45K, 250K bush, we both had the same long longest run. Run, long run in terms of kilometers. kilometers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So... Sorry, Simon. I, I was, in, and I th we're talking about the psychological, just the confidence and things like that. For, for me, again, it was. I think you referred to the first time you ever do something. When you turn up and you see these, you know, crazy people who are running the distances that they're running, there's a part of you think, how am, uh, am I the sort of person? Have I got the kind of body that can do what these mental people are doing? Because they are. The, the amount of training you've done, as you've said, can't, can't, can't be replicated for 160, 180 kilometers. And, and I think my f very first time of doing something like um, the Great North Walks 100, I'd stepped up 200 miles from not doing anything more than a 50k race. In my training, I was doing 60, and that was my longest run. But just mentally thinking, when I got to 100k, sitting there thinking, maybe my body's going to just break down or stop or all sorts of kind of mental concerns and worries and, and as Ben said from that point of view of, of confidence and experience the next time you go to do it 
it's exponentially just the difference in feeling of doing your next one you think well okay i can put the am i the sort of person who can at least complete the distance to bed and then you can focus on so many other different kind of aspects of your race and and the most recent one doing 12 hours that's when i get close to my limit of worrying about what my nutrition's going to do and doing a 12 hour one made me completely change the way that i got calories into myself um you know rather than relying on the gels and powders that i always have done in the past and stuff like that really realizing that i could depend on real food just all sorts of different types of real food and just slowly being able to to digest that completely changed my confidence because i thought i could literally go for days here because i'm eating <laughs> proper food and i'm not and i wasn't getting the gut issues that i regularly do get which just derails the whole race like knowing i could sit down and eat bowls of soup or or wraps with with all sorts of fillings in them gives you that mental comp think the last time i ate that was only a couple of hours ago it wasn't 24 hours ago when you know that everything's just draining away so yeah the long runs do give you the mental confidence yeah i think also anyone who's gone on a long run and had uh, had low blood sugar and then got some sugar through whatever form into them and suddenly felt that burst of energy is gone yeah knows how much of a difference good fueling can make and too often we know we feel like crap in the race and stuff and we just kind of start to question our fitness and have i done the right training have i gone too fast or whatever and it can just be your, your legs haven't got the fuel that they, they want as soon as you keep your stomach happy and get some fuel in all of a sudden you're going yep all feeling good again so yeah even, even just game. even that mental Positivity. Yeah, it's not as much the, the legs, it's yeah. that if your blood sugar is low, that's what your brain, brain runs off, yeah. is, gluco- is glucose. So if the blood sugar gets low, that's also where a lot of the mental demons start oh, coming in. Because your brain sick. is saying, yes. hey, I'm hungry. Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> mental negativity that comes in there. And I've had someone just give me a glucose tablet before and my whole world became clear again. And it was just, <laughs> oh, this isn't the end of the world. This is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mental positivity. <laughs> So let's move on now to how long should your long run be? Now, we'll kind of keep this in context, although, as Ben mentioned earlier, like the difference in the actual distance covered in training for a 45 was virtually the same as what Simon was in training for a 250. But just to give a context, we'll, we'll talk in terms of 100K, maybe 100-mile races. Um, not that it changes that much, but just to give it some context. So for someone training for a 100k 100 mile race what are the considerations we we take into account in working out how long their long run should be ben let's start with you what, what's your thought process on that well obviously the first protocol is how much time does someone actually have <laughs> because if someone doesn't have time to do longer than a two hour long run that's it, okay we're not going to be doing longer than a two hour long yeah. run that ultimately that's sort of what comes first is how do we fit things into someone's life mm-hmm. that all all the science and that sort of that that's all fantastic but it has to fit in logistically yeah, for someone absolutely. so to be honest that is probably the first port of call is just looking at what is someone's time availability because that is now the constraints within which you're working mm-hmm. um from there then it's also then again looking at what is their previous training? Because even if in theory you're thinking, oh, a three, four hour run would be great, if they only have a history in the last year or so of 90 minute long runs, then you're obviously going to have to take time to build up to that. So again, it's really looking at the person in front of you and then working from there. Simon, what are your thoughts on how long the long run should be? I think having purpose to the run, aside from obviously, you know, whether they do have the time and stuff like that, obviously that's the first protocol, but just seeing what the purpose of it is and making sure that they, you know, is there any need for them to be running 
as you know as far as they even even if they have all day every day do they need to be running as far as that all of the time and and, and you know i know we've discussed before just what are the actual positive practical reasons for running that far and you know yeah if you could run for six seven eight hours every day should you and i think as we've said you know often that's not the case and so for most of most of my clients i'll be you know we will be building it up two hours and then it kind of just sits around three four that maintenance type of sort of distance that we have because at least it's got some purpose occasionally some people want to do two long runs a weekend and I'd still keep one of them much shorter and have the other one with maybe a hiking focus or something which is less intense that has a different kind of not just adaptation but you know function of or mentally for them Stimulus, but, but, yeah. but just having yeah keeping it so that it has purpose I think that's the most important thing yeah I think yeah I think so many people get stuck into like I know for me most of my clients doing 100k 100 mile races will be doing four hour long runs as their standard weekend mm. run um, and the reason for four hours is for most people it's easy enough to fit in with family you can get up at five you can be back before 10 it doesn't yeah. really yeah. interfere on, on the on the family um, day for the plan um, but then I think it's easy to kind of think that okay that's just you know that four runs four hour runs each week for the whole year but I tend to think, well, if you've just finished a race and you're going through like an off-season, well, then you should reduce your long runs. Just because you yes. can run four hours doesn't mean you should. Absolutely. You know, having, having a bit of an off-season where you drop it down to two hours, even less, you know, 90 minutes for a little mm. while, just to freshen the body and the mind up again. So when they're ready to build back up again, um, but the th enthusiasm and motivation is there um, to build it back up again. So, you know, most of us, you know, we all agree that kind of three to four-ish hours is, is about where we've got to aim for, for most of our clients. Um, some of the reasons for that is how long your long run should be really is influenced hugely on what you can recover from. Um, I know when I did my first miler, um, coming from an Ironman background base, so you know, obviously trained for a marathon, so my long runs were two and a half hours, you know, 30, 35k or whatever. Um, and I was overawed by the distance, so I just kept building it up, you know, two and a half hours, three hours, three and a half hours, four hours. I did a five hour, a six hour, a seven hour. And what I found is once I got over kind of about four and a half, five hours is I just couldn't recover. Like I'd have to have the week, 10 days after, it's just easy running. Um, and I learnt from that race that that probably wasn't the most effective way of training. I lost too much training time recovering from these long runs, uh, which could have been better utilized by doing a shorter long run and keeping training as per usual. So I think one of the main considerations in how long your long run should be is what can you recover from and not affect your normal weekly training? Like, you know, if you do a speed session on Tuesday, then if you do your long run on Saturday, it doesn't matter how long that long run is on Saturday, it shouldn't affect your speed session on Tuesday. If it does, then your long run has either been run too fast or it's too long. Um, you have to be able to do it week in, week out um, and maintain that without needing to back off at all for it to be a really effective running. Um, so it's been a key thing for me in my own training and obviously pass on to my clients is that it just needs to be consistent, need to be able to recover from it. Um, it needs to feel comfortable. Like if you're getting back from a three or four hour run and feeling smashed, um, it's That too general fast. fatigue, I just think that feeling that mm. your whole life you're just feeling. I mean, obviously doing endurance stuff or doing any kind, I mean, runners generally, you know, tired and stuff, but... but being overly fatigued all the time not just muscularly but just generally yeah. in your life you, this is just yeah i think you've got it's a fine balance between just making sure that you you're getting enough but 
you're not trying to you know kill every kill someone every single week you know it's just managing that fatigue is a big thing i think yeah definitely. i mean certainly it's it's the sort of cliche saying it's if you want to be a, you know an elite endurance athlete you need to be prepared that you're going to wake up tired and go to bed yes, very tired it's, every yeah, day it's sad, isn't it? yeah. but there is a limit within that it's and again this is sort of coming out in the research you know looking at sort of overreaching and overtraining and sort of that and that pretty much once you are starting to regularly see a decent uh decrement in performance so you are as andy said there whereas like, okay i would argue that if you've done a sunday long run and tuesday speed session okay maybe you're not setting a 5k pb but if you're still by the following Friday, if you were just running easy until, say, the Friday and you still were had a large measurable decrement in performance, it's the research sort of shows then, well, actually, no, you're not. You, you've passed the point of benefit. You're yeah. not actually yeah. going to be able to adapt. At that point, you've uh, overdone it and you've induced too much fatigue to the point that it's not beneficial from a training perspective, at least physiologically. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, so, yeah, long run was, I think... I think it differs obviously from person to person um, and I think you've got to look at what your fitness can handle what your what you can recover from and then thinking about whether you need to do more like if you can handle three hours and you feel pretty comfortable should you do more is there any benefit from doing more um, should you aim for four hours should you aim for five hours like how do, how do we think about what are the limiting factors um, in terms of where we want the athlete to go? So I mean, let's say they can recover from three and they feel fine. Do we push them to four? Now, for me, I found four is a sweet spot. And, and you, know, you might ask, well, why not go to five? Um, and then it's the, that law of diminishing returns is, is what I tend to find, that if you do too many five-hour runs, most athletes, and I'm talking not full-time athletes, most of our clients are working full-time, or a family working full-time, uh, most athletes doing five-hour runs consistently will start to get niggles, they'll start to feel really tired, mm. they'll start to miss a training session, they'll start to get sick, um, their speed sessions will be slower, etc., etc. So any benefit on going longer than about four hours is outweighed by the negative effects of that. Not to say that you shouldn't go five hours, but you've got to think realistically about what you can handle and how you're pulling up from that. Any other thoughts on, on going longer than three or four or when you... Well, and as you point out there, we said you're balancing the considerations of people, everyday sort of people. But even when you look at world record holders, I mean, you look at uh, Camille Heron said the 24-hour track record, she doesn't tend to do more than 30, 35K long runs um, because she knows that she doesn't recover as well from and the quality of the rest of her training diminishes. Uh, we just recently saw the in the men's, the 100-mile world record just uh, fell and uh, Alexander Sovrakin, yep. uh, any Lithuanians can tell us how to pronounce it, but he wasn't doing more than 50k training runs, which sounds like a lot, but you got to remember his 100 mile pace is 413 pace, mm-hmm. so even running for him running at a 100 mile pace for 50ks is a three and a half hour long yeah. run. Yeah. Um, and so you've got to just keep all that in perspective that even the elites aren't tending to go, well, some, some do. And as we sort of were getting hinting there with uh, Simon's discussion before, it may also depend on what terrain and how much hiking in that is getting involved. If you are going a bit longer, there's some of those who are doing a lot longer, they're perhaps going in extremely mountainous terrain where it is a bit of... Uh, it, when you're doing your double Mont Blanc long run, <laughs> that it's uh, there's a bit of climbing involved. It's not all running. Yeah, so it's an um, experience of athlete as well, would you say? I mean... Yes. We, 
you could rely if you've got a very experienced athlete and saying yeah let's just cap it at three and a half hours four hours but as a going back full circle to what we we're saying before level of experience for people who are just get, trying to get that mental capacity that feeling of being out there maybe for some of those people as long as you're managing the fatigue a few extra longer runs is just getting them that feeling of being out there and possibly yeah. just enjoying being out there as well getting that feeling of being out on trails that's one thing is not just from a scientific point just just the sheer joy of, of, th- of getting yeah. past yeah, that point and going you know what this is beautiful this is lovely whatever the weather's changes the the, the, the aspects that you're seeing I, I, sometimes it's just nice to be out there for a long time as well and it's yeah. something as basic as that exactly we'll go yeah on. and well so much of it is getting to the start line uninjured yeah, and excited and, it. and for a lot of people they go to ultras because they really enjoy running really long distances and being out <laughs> in nature for extended periods of time that's important and so for them there will be times we're having some seven or eight hour long runs which might be at a much lower intensity if it's hilly it might it's be just, a lot of uh hiking but that mentally gets them more excited yeah. right and yeah. it's a, less it's a mentally joy to fatigued. be out there sometimes and, yeah. and and that's the thing it depends where you are and who you are and yeah sometimes it's just like if, if you are going to be putting a lot of hiking in there say like, i've got a i've got an excuse to be out there for the whole day i've got the card um i wish the kids are looked after uh, whatever it is you know a lot of people have yeah. got busy lives and sometimes it is it's it's a mini holiday within your training program yeah so yeah and yeah i was going to throw a question to you there andy yes. that you you sort of said yeah three four hours tend to be ballpark number so you is that running running or do you include hiking in yeah. that total as well yeah, so are they separate bins yeah that's kind of leads on where i was going to take this in terms of before you think about how long the long run has to be, you, you also have to consider the weekly, weekly volume. So someone like Camille Heron, she's probably running 140, 160, 180 Ks a week, doing doubles most days, 10 K in the morning, 5 K in the afternoon. So she can yep. get away with probably the wrong word, but her long run doesn't have to be as long because she's running a lot of volume in the rest of the week. Now that's not to say someone who can't run much volume overall should make the long run hugely long. But it's certainly a consideration that we have to take into account that you know, Kimmel Karen might be able to do a 30k long run and run 24 hours you know, under world record pace or whatever. But if you're only running three 10k runs during the week, then 20 or 30k might not be long enough on the weekend. Yeah, I guess both the example I use there, both Camille and Alexander, they both double every day. Yeah, yeah. And are running yeah somewhere i think camille's a bit lower i think those numbers you quoted are right alexander i think he said he was doing more like uh 200 240 sort of yeah. k's a week so you can, you can get so away with a lot shorter long run when you're running twice a day 10k a day you know if not more that's not to say that if you haven't got a high volume you should do a super long run because it's also got to be balanced with what you can recover from and that leads into your question ben about hiking and running um and obviously, if you're hiking a lot of it, as you know, Simon mentioned before in his training for the 250, is that if you're out for eight hours and you're hiking for six hours of that, then it's not really a particularly demanding day out. Um, whereas if you're out for six hours and you're running five hours of that, that's quite a quite a big load on your body. Um, so the amount of hiking versus the amount of running. You know, obviously, our, our first point of call is how much vert has the race we've got got in it. Um, in terms of 10k so is it 400 meters per 10k is it 600 meters per 10k is it 200 meters per 10k and that's kind of like the starting point for determining 
what your long run should consist of. Um, as a ballpark figure, obviously some people won't have access to that amount of vert if they're training for a very hilly um, race. Like, you know, I lived in London training for UTMB, so I just didn't have access to 600 metres of vert <laughs> per 10k. Um, and it does go the other way. I've had some people live in the mountains training for a flat race that just, for them, mm. finding a flat run. Like I know you, Ben, yeah, trying to get you to do a flat run, the only way you could do it was on uh, road. Otherwise, it was at least 300 yep. per 10k. I just want to sort of jump in there and sort of say um, people might be thinking it sounds like we're sort of poo-pooing hiking as it's not as intense and hard. And certainly anyone who's, say, done a vertical kilometre knows that you're <laughs> where uh, yep. it's all super steep. You can be working extremely yes. hard, just as hard as if you were running for that 30 minutes, yep. if you're essentially hiking for that time going up a really steep hill. So you can still get those cardiovascular benefits, but those are the ones where it's less likely to saturate with time. It really largely comes down to the fact that if you're hiking is going to have much less impact and so you're going to be inducing a lot less uh musculoskeletal damage, damage. Yeah. that's a really good uh, point yeah and the, that that's really why yeah. uh hiking you can sort of get away with those much larger volumes is for instance you look at cyclists where there it's basically no impact they do mammoth volumes like it's quite common for those elites to be doing 30 hours of cycling a week and it's far more i mean i I think killian says he does that sometimes but he's a bit of an exception most most people would break down well and truly before that sort of point of uh running volume and so really it comes down to that impact that running because you have that flight phase you are inducing much higher impacting loads than you are when you're uh, walking, even if though you may be cardiovascularly working really yeah. hard when you're going up a steep hill. Yeah, yeah. That's um, a good point. Yeah, I've done some three-minute hiking reps where my heart rate and lungs have just blown out through the roof, just like hugely working hard. But next day you feel fine because there's very little kind of load going through the legs. So yeah, back to back to hiking and, and long runs. You've got to get a balance because, you know, if you, if you replicate the vert per 10K... Um, and you end up doing, you know, say in four hours, you end up doing 25 Ks and maybe 15 Ks that's running and 10 Ks is hiking. And you've got to ask yourself, is 25 Ks of running broken up regularly throughout that four hours? Is that enough of a training load on the legs to help you run as much of 100 miles or 100 K as you possibly can? Now, the example I use to people is in, in UTMB from the about 110 K mark Col de Frey, Rank on the foray is the descent from that is 25 k's of descent. So if you're not used to running non-stop 25 k's, you're going to really struggle at 110 k mark in a mile of running non-stop 25 k's. So it doesn't matter whether your four-hour, five-hour run has got 600 meters of vert in it. If you've got lots of short hills going up and down, up and down, you haven't conditioned the legs to run 25 k's non-stop. So occasionally there, there's a good argument for doing a much less hilly run and making it all very, very runnable. Now, for someone like Ben, you know, if I give Ben a 500 meter pervert um, per 10K run, long run, he can run 99% of that. Um, whereas I know for me, I'm hiking, you know, th- at least 30% of that. Um, and when you, once you start talking kind of, you know, mid-pack, you're talking probably hiking half of that. And when you're talking back of the pack, you're talking hiking 75% of that. So if you're going out for a run that mimics the, the vert per 10k of your race, but you're only running 25-30% of that, come race day, you're going to be running a lot less of what you'd like to be running because your legs just aren't conditioned enough to handle 
that amount of running. Because even at a 100k race where it's got 600 meters of vert, you know, that's 80k uphill, 80k downhill. You know, yes. added some flat bits in there as well. That's still 80 kilometers of, of running. Um, and if you're only running 15, 20k in training as your maximum long run, and that's broken up into a run, walk, run, walk, the idea you can handle long stretches of downhill running, or even a even a 5k flat section after 120k, you no, know, 2k's into that, you're going to go, I want to walk, I want to walk, I want to walk. So you've really got to think about how much training load you're getting in your long run, um, and whether you need to reduce the amount of vert to get more running in. Not every week, but certainly to get a balance of training load. Get enough hills, get enough downhill, get enough hiking, get enough running. So you tick all the boxes to get your legs conditioned for the race you're about to train for. Yeah. Conversely, sometimes there's also an argument for going hillier yes. in the long runs, which is when people live somewhere... For instance, a common one would be training for Ultra Trail Australia. People might live in Sydney and they're doing a lot of runs uh, where it's re along somewhere really flat where they are running continuously all, all those runs during the week. And then on the weekends, maybe they can get up to the Blue Mountains and do some hilly runs. Of in which case, okay, this is their one chance of the week to get in some decent vert. Yeah. You might purposely, you might still train on the course, but focus on some of the hillier sections rather than some of the flatter sections of the course because that is their one opportunity to get in a bit of decent vert and you know that they can run for continuously quite well because that's what they're doing yep. six days of the week and this is their one day where it's like, okay, this is now your chance to really practice those specific skills of hiking, etc. So then the question is, how much does total vert per week matter in relation to the vert in the race? I mean, it's always a case of it depends. Yeah, where it's, it's always like, a depend ideal, Ideally, I would say that the in an ideal situation where we have someone who lives on around the course so can access very similar train all the time, you would probably be matching the weekly vert per K relatively similar sort of ballpark and that you would then be breaking it up in a similar sort of way that it is in the race. And from there, again, it's a case of, okay, what does someone actually have? The, how We've got to work with what we've got and that how we then actually divvy that up. So that's where as we we're sort of saying that, and as you were hinting before, it also depends on what are their strengths and weaknesses. If I have someone who I know is a very strong climber descender but not so great on the runnable sections, well, then maybe we do have to dial that, vol that total weekly vert back a little bit. Or vice versa, that if they have a lot, of, they've run a lot of say road marathons or that, and now they're stepping up to a hilly race, maybe they would benefit from having a slightly higher uh, vert in some cases in order to condition themselves for that specific challenge. Yeah, the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is you know if you're only doing fifteen hundred, two thousand vert per week, and you've suddenly got a few weekends, or you're on holiday, or you've got more access to mountains, going from say fifteen hundred vert to three and a half thousand vert is just opening yourself up for injuries. Um, yep. So although you, you might be able to go to the Blue Mountains every weekend, um, you know, your first few times, you need to think about, okay, I'm only doing 1500 vert per week for the last three months, let's say. It's probably not a good idea to do 1500 vert in one run um, this weekend. I, I probably need to pick a, a more runnable route and over the course of the next kind of four to eight weeks, gradually increase the vert I'm doing in my long run to make sure my legs, knees, hips, etc. can handle it. 
Um, so there's always yeah. that progression of, of total load, in this case, vert, we've got to think about. Um, speaking of progression... So I guess while you... Yeah, I was going to say, while speaking of progression, how, how do you progress your long runs then as well? We've talked about taking someone from one hour to four hours and that. How, Andy or Simon, how do you go... Well, if you're looking at the overall volume as well in the week, I think that just concentrating on the long run itself as being the only area for increasing volume wouldn't take into account the fact that you could also be increasing possibly a tempo session or a hill rep session. So whether you're... In my experience, I've... I have a lot of clients it's it's that wants to keep just increasing the long run all of the time i want to run further i want to do an ultra i want to train like a you know and and forgetting yeah. that actually you've probably you've increased maybe the 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 extended hill rep session that they're doing or the tempo session and as a percentage they those sort of intense sessions are going to have fatigue related to them that is then going to have an effect for the rest of the week so being careful that you're not just focusing on increasing well i would say a weekly volume is one thing to look at but being careful that you're not increasing everything at the same time i think and and, and going up very very incrementally and being and just being careful because i think that people do want to increase it sometimes it feels like i'm trying to hold people back yeah Definitely. Because everyone, people they want to prove they want to prove that they're doing the working hard, and and I think that it, that's great. But sometimes it's like, whoa, 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 well, if we're gonna if we're gonna add an extra hour on your on your long run, have a look at what you're doing on Tuesday because that 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 tempo session's now gone. You're, you're now doing three twenty minute at, at you know at a very high intensity. Let's just be careful, and I, and I, and I think that's. That progression is something that, depending on the person, depending on their their previous experience, but also what else are they doing in the week before the long run is the only thing that you just start making bigger and bigger and bigger. Because I think that you do have to consider the fact that they could be also fatigued or fatigued or, or recovering from other intense sessions in the week. So a good example of that is my long run at the moment is 16K. Now, could I go out and run 20K? Yep, and I probably feel pretty comfortable. Could I go out and run 25K? I reckon I probably could. 30K is probably where I'd start to go, you know, that's probably a bit too far. But am I? No. And why? Well, I've taken my running from virtually, I mean, I fell over just before Christmas and had eight stitches in my knee. So I had, you know, two or three weeks off, uh, no running at all and lost some leg strength. So I had to build back carefully. But the reason I haven't increased my long run much is my weekly volume's gone from 20, 25, 30, 35, 40. So each week I've added more and more volume. So adding more volume and making a long run longer yes. is, a, is a double whammy in life. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, I do want to make my long run longer and it's gone from you know, 8K to 15K over a period of 12 weeks, which is very conservative. But my 15K long run feels very, very comfortable. It doesn't feel any harder than a 10K run, which is how it should feel at, the, at this stage of my fitness. So I think in the long run, you know, people, as you said, Simon, people want to make it longer. They think that, you know, the longer you go, the better. Uh, they want to go run with the mates who are doing a 40K and, mm-hmm. you know, their long run might only be 30K. Oh, extra 10K, it's fine. Uh, I think we get too carried away with that. I mean... Ben, you had a really good example of increasing the long run by a minute. Uh-huh, Want yeah. to share with us that little analogy? Well, I guess this is to try and quell the uh, the myth of the ten percent rule that it gets. I, I guess this is coming from a background <laughs> of a physicist where you're used to dealing with laws of nature. So when someone says something's a rule, 
and just leaves it as a blanket statement. You want it to be true yeah. in all cases. And something like the 10% rule, I just often see it get thrown around as that example where it's like, okay, increase your weekly volume by 10%, that's sustainable. And that's how it just gets put out there. And it's like, well, that's clearly not true because this is a thought experiment for everyone out there. If you're running one minute per day, say seven minutes a week, and you follow this 10% quote-unquote rule, how long do you think it will take until you're running 24-7? Now, clearly, that's not sustainable at all. So for this to be a possibly feasible rule, it must be longer than at least uh, a human <laughs> lifespan. Right? No, it's 18 months. It's 77 wow. weeks. It's 18 months. Like, that's ridiculous. How many people do you know have been running for more than a minute per day? And how many of you think could be running 24-7 in 18 months? If that sounds absurd, that's how absurd yeah. the 10% rule is when it gets thrown out there as a blanket statement. Exactly. So when we look at um, another example I use for people is, you know, they say, oh, I want to run, I can never run more than 70K a week. You know, I always break down. And what you typically find is, you know, they'll break down or they just started running and they'll get to 30K a week and within about, let's say, three months, they've gone from 30K a week to 70K a week and they start getting niggles. I say to people, look, if you started at 20K a week and you added one kilometer per week, not per day, per week, in a year, you're now running 70K. In two years, you're running 120K. Now, one kilometer per week is nothing. You're barely going to be perceive any difference much, much less, less than 10 percent you barely can perceive any mm -hmm. difference in training load but if you do that then if you can think of the long game and endurance is a, is a long game it's not a three-month game it's not a six-month game you know if you look at all the best runners out there we're talking years and years of consistent training is what leads them to be where they want to be if you can play the long game and increase really conservatively then you can get to 70 80 90 whatever it is you want to get to injury free and fitter than you've ever been in your life but when you tell somebody to go from, you know, 18K to 19K, they go, well, can I go 20? Can I go 21? You know, so yeah. increasing a long run, I think as coaches, I'm, I'm, I tend to be conservative and, and trying to hold people back and not rush them into it. But against that, on the flip side of that, you think, well, I've got a race coming up in 12 weeks' time and they're currently doing 20K. So then it's a case of finding that sweet spot between benefit versus risk in terms of how much can I push them safely to get to a point where they're going to maximize their performance on race day. I think the 10% rule is not one I use at all when figuring that out. And I know, Dip Ben and Simon, it's not yours either. I think it more comes down to you know, how much time they have, how much training volume they have, how much history of training they have, what their injury profile is like. You might have an athlete that's quite robust. You might have another athlete who, from a history of training, they break down all the time. Um, in terms of terrain, you know, you can you can go to a 20k road run, to a to a 25k trail run, probably pretty comfortably, because that 25 trail run is probably going to involve quite a bit of hiking. But the reverse of that is probably very unsafe. Like going from a 30k trail run where you're hiking 10 of it to a 30k road run, same distance. It's probably going to be a precursor to injury because they're not used to running that. So you, you've always got to be thinking about what load they've got, what can they handle, what's the safe increase. And 10% is not something I, I really use at all. Uh, it's more looking at, okay, last week you did three hours, and of that you ran 20, you hiked five. I reckon this week if you up the vert an extra 50 metres or so per 10K and did the same amount of time, 
you'll get less hiking but more downhill running and that's a big enough stimulus for this week for example so the the running volume might even be less but the load is more because they're doing more downhill so you can't just kind of look at distance or time as the only things you think about when how much you increase your long run by i also said good communication i think as much as we do a lot of the stuff online i think being able to talk to people regularly keeping sort of an open dialogue with them and as much as I, on the one hand I was saying before that people are keen to in, in, increase but listening to, to those those comments that people make about that session felt a bit or I, I felt heavy uh, and just starting to recognise patterns in the things that they say and realising that maybe they are starting to feel a lot of people maybe don't want to sometimes admit they're feeling tired because they yep. want to look robust and they want to look like they're handling it at all. But I think careful, carefully listening to what people say and, and sometimes reading between the lines, you can you can kind of get an idea that, you know what, maybe next week I'll just not increase that session or I'll just make, instead of a, a downhill, you know, we'll make it an active recovery on the downhill rather than making it a quad bus. Same kind of session, but instead of, you know, blazing downhills, Let's see. and you can sometimes get that feeling I think and just and just by reading between the lines of what people are saying as well I think good communication yeah I think I think being honest with yourself for those who you aren't coached being honest with yourself is really important I think we too often tend to ignore the, the first little signs of the body not handling it um, you know for example I, my the eight kilometer harder run I did the other day um, I was kind of like three quarters of the way into it thinking oh maybe I'll push a bit harder towards the end then my hammy just kind of said you know what I'm feeling like I'm on the edge here so I just kind of like said okay let's just kind of keep it here and let's not push any harder and it pulled up absolutely fine but I think you know me 20 years ago just, I would have just ignored right. that and just like pushed <laughs> yeah, on yeah. and maybe got away with it that day but then the speed session or a longer run later the next week or that week going oh now that's really sore I think too often we ignore those little signals that don't aren't really a pain. They're not really even really a niggle. But you think, well, it would be nice if I didn't have that. Like, my other leg's not feeling that. My other leg's feeling fine. This leg's feeling something. And it's just a little warning sign that, okay, I wouldn't increase anything at this with, with you feeling like this. I think too often we're too impatient. We want to... We want to up the training the next week. We want to go a bit faster. We want to we want to see signs that we're getting better. Mm -hmm. And I think that clouds our judgment on progressing. Um, yeah, Ben, any thoughts on on that? Well, I think it's coming. Well, we're starting mm -hmm. to see races come back online here in Australia. So it's interesting. Last year was this really nice sort of almost experiment where you suddenly had races off the cards for just about everyone, at least for a period. And suddenly there wasn't the pressure to do that, that you could re everyone was really doing training according to how they're, how they're feeling. As you said, Andy, how you don't want to sign up for any races right now because you don't want to force yourself onto a schedule that it's about that suddenly you can just focus on how am I actually responding to training and just focus on getting as fit as possible. And ironically, in a lot of cases, people probably ended up in a position better off for racing because they weren't forcing themselves to this contrived yeah. timeline that ultimately your body there there is a finite limit to how quickly your body can adapt and so if you're saturating that you're doing as much as you can then and you're going to be as prepared as possible doing anything more at that point is only going to be detrimental 
And so it's really sort of having to sort of accept your own limits. Uh, I know there's the famous run out there. He says no human is limited, <laughs> but are. sorry, you, you are. are. Um, ex- accepting yes. those limits is really important so that you can uh, just then work within those confines and then be, be the best version of you possible to get as fit as possible for that start line. And if that meant that your longest long run was 35K instead of 40K because that's what you could handle and that's what got you as fit as possible, great. You're as fit as possible. It's all As we say, it's always better to get to the start line a little bit underdone but niggle-free and feeling good than get to the start line broken and kind of washed out just waiting for the race to be over rather than really looking looking forward forward to, to, to beginning. Yeah. So the next thing we're going to talk about is the intensity of the long run. So, Ben, where do we start with that? So, as I sort of said at the start, a lot of sort of research that sort of looks at that, they're typically looking at something like VO2 max and percentage of that as a metric. So, typically there you're looking at around sort of 60 to 75% of VO2 max being sort of an ideal intensity. Obviously, no one's running around with a portable gas mask and uh, to actually then implement that. But to show that. me that so, Game & Watch can tell them their VO2 max... Of course, and then also how long to recover for afterwards. <laughs> uh, just just in case anyone's um, didn't pick up the sarcasm there, don't trust your Garmin watch or any other watch with any metrics like VO2 max or how long you should recover or, or any data like that whatsoever. Sorry, Ben. No. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I guess... So there are various other, so obviously things like pace or if we're on the trails, pace isn't there really handy, something like power. So Andy, I know you're... Uh, pet project is always the power meter, so I'll throw over to you. What sort of power ranges would you typically yeah, so think are ideal for the long for run? For power, like just to preamble how we work out intensity using power, it's based off your threshold. Like, and you can talk lactate threshold or mean steady state uh, lactate levels or functional threshold power or critical power. They're all defined slightly differently, but they're all pretty much the same. And it's pretty much the intensity you can, the maximum intensity you can hold for between 30 to 60 minutes, depending on your fitness level. Um, so for most people in, in real ballpark terms, if you're a, a 40 to 60 minute 10K runner, it's your 10K pace. So all our uh, levels of intensity are derived from that pace. So for, for power, if we know your threshold or your critical power is say 280 watts, then easy runs, long runs should be around the 80% mark of that. Um, and then obviously 10K is, is threshold power and we can do intervals which, which is higher than that. But sticking to the long run, yeah, 80% of, of threshold um, is where we, we like to see. And that works for pace as well. Like if, you, if you're running on the flat and you know your 10K pace, then you can use that. But most of us aren't running on the flat, so pace becomes completely useless. Um, heart rate is the other thing that some people try and use to determine intensity for long runs and look heart rate will get you in the ballpark if you know how to use it Um, if you're starting with 220 minus your age it's potluck whether that's anywhere near being accurate there's no evidence to show that it is accurate it's accurate for some people it's vastly inaccurate for other people the other thing with 220 minus your age it's completely irrelevant to your fitness you could be super fit or never run for five years and the heart rates are going to be the same because it's 220 minus your age um, so that's one limitation so then the next better way to use heart rate is to do a threshold test which is what we do with power 
Um, there's a number of ways you can do that, but I won't go into that because I don't really believe in heart rate training that much anyway. But let's say you... I guess also just as a caveat with heart rate, let... It also really depends on what you're using to measure it, that if you're using the wrist-based yeah. ones, some people it looks okay, but for a lot of people it's terrible. For me, I may as well use a random number generator <laughs> as a wrist race heart rate monitor. Yeah. It's just as useful. Yeah. Um, so it has to be the chest mm -hmm. strap. And yes. if you're doing long trail runs and you're wearing a pack, uh, wearing a chest strap is a good way to get super chafed. Yeah. So <laughs> it's often not practical. That's another reason why... No ultra runners really don't like using heart rate because as, as you said Ben, wrist monitor is useless and who wants to get chafing around their chest for hours and hours and hours on end um, but if you know if you, if you want to use it for your long runs and stuff you know, if you've got a 10k average heart rate um, then you, you might say well 80% of that but the, the problem with heart rate is you know if it's a hot day it's going to be high, if it's a cold day it's going to be low, if you had less sleep it's going to be different, if you had more sleep it's going to be different, if you're stressed it's going to be different on race day with adrenaline, it's going to be different. If you had caffeine, it's going to be different. There's just so many variables that kind of uh, dehydration is going to be different. There's just so many variables that make it really difficult to use it for anything more than a ballpark figure. And ballpark meaning it might be like 130 to 150, which anyone who's run with heart rate knows that, that that's quite a big range mm. uh, for the average person. It doesn't really help you kind of hone down on what kind of pace you should be doing in long runs. So for me, for those athletes using power, it's um, 80%. It's your starting point. Um, but if you haven't got power, like Simon, what do you recommend if you haven't got power? I've generally used a kind of that conversational thing where at least people are feeling relaxed and running. Uh, even, you know, that perceived effort, knowing that if people are familiar, that's the only thing, they've got to be familiar with what their efforts are. I think that's the thing of, of sort of saying that you're running within within yourself, within a range that's going to be race pace. People who are more experienced probably have got a bit more of an idea with that. So I think sometimes having that metric, if they're not experienced, can give them a, a more specific answer. But for those who've got a bit more experience, I think being able to hold a you know a general conversation and being able to, rather than you know one sentence or something as a shorter sentence for your long runs being able to easily hold the conversation know that you're in control um I, I think that's probably a good you know especially if people are doing social runs but if you're going to go and do um you know solo ones just still having bearing that in mind that could you you know do, do you feel nicely in control of, of of where you are and a perceived effort of being something that's you can maintain your all-day race pace, or sometimes or your all-day pace. I'll sometimes refer to. But Simon, I know, I know, running hard alongside you some days, you could, you can still talk at VH2 max intensity. You can still have a, <laughs> hold a normal conversation. I have been accused of talking a little bit too much. I'm, I'm, I'm biting my tongue here sometimes just to keep quiet. <laughs> That's true enough. Yes, yeah. I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk the legs off a horse here. <laughs> Um, ben, any, any further thoughts on that? I know you've got a few different thoughts being uh, on the elite end of the scale. Yeah, so it is kind of interesting that I sort of, I guess, noticed that people at sort of more the pointy end where they probably do have a higher VO2 max and that might relatively sound, seem like they're breathing a little bit harder at the same sort of percentage of VO2 max because they are simply moving more oxygen and that. Um, but by that stage, a big thing is Simon sort of alluded to there with perception of effort. I'm usually not a huge fan of like the RPE, like run at a seven because it's like, what yeah. does that mean? Like no one, but if you're as an experienced runner, if you say, if you say to someone who's been running for several years, run at a pace you can sustain for five hours at, at race pace, but run for three hours at that pace. You s okay. 
I know what that that's feels like because I've comes done. In, I think I've sure, done yes. so many races. So that's very experience. Yes. Yeah. So obviously, that's one of those things. It's like okay, great. It gets easy once you've been in the sport yes. for ten years. Um, but <laughs> it, it is a big thing that all, all these metrics like power, heart rate, looking at that pace. Ultimately, you're trying to just develop that yeah. sense that these are just short, not shortcuts even, just ways to help get that 10 years experience in five years sort of thing <laughs> that it still takes time it's still this learning experience but ultimately that's what you want because you can't ever be relying on a device because devices break or they they yeah they don't work you didn't charge it overnight before your race so you, yeah. but your brain is always there with you so ultimately and also your brain is just such more powerful processor than this little watch why why would you trust the watch over what and that's why right, i say experience so you, is paramount yeah, it's that learning sure. experience yeah. so some tips i kind of give my athletes if they're not using power is in terms of long runs like it's the mistakes that people make is they'll run a little bit too hard up the hills uh, with the idea that they can recover down the hills. Now, to my way of thinking, the effort shouldn't change whether it's flat or up. Um, so if, if you felt really comfortable on the flat and you're going up a hill, it still should feel really comfortable. shouldn't feel any harder going up the hill. Going down the hill, obviously, cardiovascular-wise, it's going to feel easier. Um, and I think people go the other way on downhills in, in long runs. They, they tend to go too easy. Um, thinking it's recovering, they can just kind of cruise on down and, and enjoy the... The cruise, whereas you know they're missing out on some good leg conditioning. Not to say you should push the downhills, but you know if a lot of people just focusing on you know technique downhill and just making it um, feel like the same, but in a different way as the flat and uphill, um, will mean your downhill both skills and leg conditioning will develop more. Um, I think long runs. If you feel like you're struggling towards the end of a long run, like your pace is slowing down, or you feel you're like your intensity is increasing then you need to either think that I took off too fast or I haven't got enough calories in my system and that's why I'm struggling. And once you've kind of thought through that process and gone, okay, I've had plenty of calories, so I must have taken off too fast, that's a cue that, okay, next time I need to take off a bit slower. Um, understanding how heat, humidity affects that is another big thing. You know, when summer first comes around, you often find that you start to struggle at the end of long runs because you haven't adjusted the pace and so you you're starting off at the same pace you were doing in July or, or winter for those in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, but all of a sudden, an hour and a half in, the heat and humidity is starting to kick in and you're really starting to struggle. So I think, you know, understanding that effect, okay, it is warmer today, even though it's cool now, by the time I finish, it's going to be quite hot and quite humid, so I need to start cooler, start slower and easier. Um, the other question we can ask, talk about is, can you go too slow in a long run? Is there such a thing as too easy a pace? Your thoughts, gents? Well, I mean, it, clearly, if you take the answer to the extreme where you're just now crawling, then yes, clearly yes. you can go too slowly. That there would be a minimum, there is certainly a minimum intensity for inducing any sort of adaption. And that if you're trying, it depends again a bit on distance that you're training for, but if you're just walking at a casual pace for hours on end, well, you can certainly do that and rack up a lot of hours as we see people do multi day hikes and that. And look, certainly that will get you a lot more fitter than if you were sedentary, but it doesn't necessarily prepare you for the sort of race intensity of running an ultra marathon. So y yes, it sort of can be a little too so easy what about as well. If you're it's... running, so let's say you're running, you're not hiking, you're, you're definitely running, and you run too slow. Again, yes, that it depends again relative to your uh, 
fitness and that that if you're um so I'll, I'll just use myself as an example that if i'm running along a flat that you know for a couple of hours something like four minute k pace is quite comfortable if i was just at the run walk threshold you sort of transition where you're looking at sort of maybe eight minute k pace so twice going twice as slowly that's probably not going to induce any positive adaptions for me really just fatigue yep Tommy. Yeah, I was thinking about initially there about the hike thing, and even even from hiking and walking, you know, I often say you know hiking or walking with purpose, like actually not just ambling along, but actually you are pushing a pace because you it's more efficient to be able to walk, particularly yep. uphill. Um, yeah. The amount of times where I've been doing things with people, and you can see people very much focused on I am a runner, I will run, and you're walking alongside them equally as quickly and then you get to the top and they're cooked and you've still got the legs so i think there is there's the finding that balance between what that work walking that power hike that walking with purpose thing is i think ben said earlier on yeah. about about hiking and the caveat being that it's not just a slow walk it's it, it is something which is an efficient way of being able to handle the type of elevation that's in front of you um if we were going to just go for the run thing again again depending on elevation whether you're going up or down i think if you if you're going down you can run too slowly you could run too slowly on the flat um going uphill i think it's it depends where you are in the field um for somebody you know like ben you know in that elite level there i think they've got a different set of rules to what the rest the 80 percent of the rest of the field have got and for some people it depends where they are in in that you know in that spectrum of runners i guess as to, as to whether they can run, too, you know, too slowly. Some people might need those, you know, you, you, you guys that are running there for completion, that might be their survival technique, that they are running at the slowest pace they can just to avoid walking, and it's it's a necessity to see it through. Yeah. Yeah, that might be race pace yes. in yeah. certain situations. Yeah, for, 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 for the mid-pack and back of the pack, you usually find that your long run pace is for mid-pack is the race pace for the last half of 100k um, and if you're back of the pack your long run pace um, is race pace for the, the start of the 100k and you, and you get slower from there your long mm. run pace um, so that there's you know for if you're back of the pack and you're running you're probably if you run any slower you're going to be feeling like you want to walk anyway it's more for people you know if we're talking 100k race and we're talking those athletes that can run 12 to 16 hours um, so not not front of the pack, but you know, decent runners. Mm. Uh, I think it is possible to run too slow. I think runs mm. can be too social, um, and typically what happens is tends to be more walking in there. And you know what it's like. I mean, if, if Ben came out for a run with say a eighteen hour UTA runner and did the long run together, it's going to be too slow for Ben. Even if the, running a lot of it, it's still going to feel too slow. So I think as a, as a guideline, if the pace is significantly slower than your easy runs, then you're probably going too slow. If it feels in the ballpark of your easy runs, then it's probably fine. And even doubt, it's probably better to go a fraction too slow than a fraction too fast. And the reason I say that is you'll be able to back up a lot easier. And on Monday, you can go straight back into your normal training where mistake most people make or a lot of people make is like a long run is too hard and then they're knackered for you know three or four days and they miss out a speech session on tuesday and the rest of the training suffers so if you're if you're in doubt go a little bit slower than you think you should 
um, rather than a little bit faster. And you, you probably find your long runs are more comfortable, you get more out of them, your training is more consistent week to week to week, and you, eventually you race better. Um, anything else we haven't covered on intensity you can think of there, guys? Well, do you ever include some harder efforts into that as well? Yeah, though? that leads on fast, well to... Like fast um, finishes and things. To the, to the next topic, which was types of long runs. Hmm. Um, so types of long runs, so the ones I use anyway, first of all is fast finish long run, um, whereas mm -hmm. you just typically build up the last half hour, 20 minutes, 40 minutes. Um, then the next one is... And so what are the benefits of those? Why, why would a runner want to include those things? Yeah, so I think you're always looking at increasing the load uh, on your legs. So once you've got to a point where you, you know, you're cranking out four-hour run, long runs, have been for a while and feeling comfortable, you're going to start thinking, okay, well, what are my options? What are my alternatives to increasing the load on this runner without breaking them? So you think, well, do I want to go longer? Do I want to make him do a, a five-hour run or a six-hour run? Or do I want to get to used to picking the pace up towards the end of a long run? Now, me personally, I think I would typically try and do a fast finish long run before increasing a five or six hour run. And the reason I say that is it, it really teaches people how to pace. So you know, often the first time you do that, they'll get to it and say, oh, I, couldn't, I couldn't pick it up the last half hour, I was pretty tired. It's like, okay, well, you, you took off too fast. Your long runs are too fast. We know that now because if you've got nowhere to go in the last half hour, then your long runs are too fast. So it's a good tool in teaching people how to pace things. So, you know, if they start off a four hour run or a three hour run knowing that they've got to pick it up, um, and we're not talking you know, 10k pace or anything, all I give my clients is pick it up just so you know it's a step higher in intensity than what you were doing. And for most people, that might only be 10 or 15 seconds per K or 10 or 15 watts higher. So it's not a significant jump up. It's just a little bit. And if they can't do that, then you know straight away they took off too fast. So it's a good tool for teaching them better pacing from the start. And that really helps in racing because they can remember that, okay, when I took off at this pace before, I couldn't pick it up towards the end. So the chances of me continuing to run for twice that distance, because often your long run is only half the distance of a race, it's pretty slim, so I need to rein it back a little bit. So I think that's a very valuable tool. I guess one thing also, which is this is more speculative because this is something that I think will be an area of research in the coming years, that we're seeing a lot of evidence for what's sort of called fatigue resistance coming out as being a pretty important factor for elite performance in, say, marathon runners or, like, general classification riders at, you know, Grand Tours and that. And essentially all that is is looking at it's not so you take a bunch of elites they're going to all have very similar vo2 max lactate threshold running economy a lot of these traditional metrics and what is sort of starting to come out of what can often then separate the best from the rest at that sort of level is how little do they slow down which perhaps doesn't seem that surprising when you phrase it that way but it's essentially looking at okay you might all you take a bunch of elite marathon runners and they might all have a similar 5k pb but how, who has the fastest 5K with 35K in their legs? That's probably going to be the winner of the marathon. Yeah. And so there isn't a lot of research currently as to how you try. So simply the research coming out to show you that is an important factor. And you look at, say, general classification riders in um, Grand Tours and compare them to, say, the Domestiques or the under-23s and that. And that is really what separates. Yeah. You look at th their max powers they can sustain for different dis different durations is pretty similar when fresh but get them test them again after they've been training for a few hours and it's the 
that's where you see the top riders really coming out. So it's about how well they perform when fatigued. And that's something that where there hasn't been a lot of research currently yet to see how do people perform when they're fatigued. But that's always... It, it's something well that I've always sort of thought as I view sort of my training and then with athletes that I coach, if if we use a 100K of example, it's about I want you to be able to run that second half as fast as possible. And as a result, you could also run the first half faster because we've gotten you fitter. We've improved those various traditional metrics like VO2 max, like tech threshold, all of that. But it's really about how well do you perform under a sort of state of fatigue, which, yeah, is sort of coming out. And yeah, but speculatively, I suspect that things like these sort of faster finish long runs where you are directly training that is probably, and perhaps to some degree, this is a psychological effect, but there probably are some physiological benefits there as well to trying to do that sort of 40 minute fast, you know, 30 minute faster effort when you've got that three hours of running in your legs versus when you were fresh. Yeah, I think the other thing in terms of um, the mental side of things, um, being confident you can you can dig a bit deeper and push a bit harder at the end of a long run, I think really translates well into the back half of an ultra as well. Um, so I think there's huge benefit in doing that kind of thing, more so than just cranking up an extra half hour or so or an hour onto your, onto your long run and you know, getting used to, say, five hours being your standard long run. Um, so I would tend to stick with four hours and at a fast finish rather than up the long run consistently at five hours. Um, other top I, I like that idea um, just, just just from the point of view before you were talking about perceived effort and the experience the people who maybe are not quite as experienced yeah. by giving them a long run and then asking them to go a little bit quicker that might actually re uh, help them to reevaluate what they thought was yeah. as slow or the correct pace by saying well can you go a bit faster than that and as you just said actually no I can't ah and then it, it, it can, can become part of that learning experience for them I guess that would be quite a good way of doing that it's also really, really helpful in summer for athletes because trying to pick up a long run uh, at the end when it's you know, 30 degrees, 80% humidity, um, if you haven't paced it well, it's pretty much impossible no matter how mentally tough you are. Um, so it really teaches people to be super conservative in the first half of a long run on a hot summer's day. You may have started when it was cooler as well. Yeah, exactly. And the, the recent research, there was, this, there was an article came out just recently that they, they can't really prove it, but the thought process seems to be that even if you start cool when it gets warm, starting at a slower pace is going to lead you to a faster overall result. But the thinking of making hay while the sun doesn't shine, so to speak, <laughs> it doesn't work. You just get your body temperature up more, so when the sun does shine, yes. you're at an elevated temperature and it hits hit you even more. So I think it's really useful in, in summer to not be, you know, I wouldn't ask my athletes very often in summer to try and do a fast finish long run because it's it's super tough. <laughs> Ben's shaking his head here going, yep. <laughs> but um, it is probably worth trying once or twice, particularly for those athletes who struggle with pacing because uh, it really, really you know, smacks you in the face going, okay, that is way too fast. I am completely busted at the end of three hours. There's no way I could pick it up for the last half. I need to slow down. Um, so it's a very good learning tool. Um, the second one, I think, Ben, you talked about was um, adding in efforts. Um, what are your thoughts on adding in efforts in the long run? Well, as I said, that I would tend to agree that that sort of faster finish is the first place I would go, and then you can also then play around with inserting efforts earlier and later into... Well, not later. You can't go later than the end. But <laughs> perhaps the even multiple efforts. Yeah. Like you might say, 
let's say you have a three hour long run and you do one 20 minute effort at the one hour mark and then another one at the two hour mark or something and again that that's sort of just to again as you alluded to there where you're sort of getting that pacing right and developing that perception effort and also then you sort of show yourself that hang on like yeah i can put in this effort and then i actually can still recover and keep going which is if you're you're talking about someone sort of again at the pointy end where they are racing and perhaps there are sometimes some tactics and surges and that it's as much simulating that as trying to okay this is practicing putting in a bit of a surge but also it can be a way to make that uh run more time efficient as well if we've got a time crunched athlete and they can't do more than two three hours usually then it's like well how can we make that harder well we can insert some efforts we can deplete your glycogen more and that with some faster efforts and increase the intensity that way by putting in some tempo efforts essentially during the run. I think it, it also gives a good um, goal for a long run. I know when I've had some really good races, I've been able to do, as you said, a 20 minute tempo effort, kind of just over an hour. And then I've done a bit of a loop and come back to the same point with another hour and a half of my legs and then try to do the same 20 minute effort and see how far I get. And I know when I'm really fit, that second tempo effort is the same distance as the first one. So that's what I know, okay, if I can do that, then I'm in pretty good condition. Whereas if you try and do that and the second tempo effort is significantly slower, then you think, okay, I still haven't got that fatigue resistance as you were talking about, Ben. I need to work a bit harder on that. The other thing I tend to do was do that, like it leads into back-to-back runs. So back-to-back, how I define it, is not so much two runs in a row, but more, although that is another strategy, but um, I tend to define, say, doing a, a run on Friday night than doing a run, long run Saturday morning. So you're combining two runs within a short time period. Um, and I think a good, a good way to do that is you start off doing a speed session or a hill session on Friday night. Just your typical, you know, 75, 80-minute session with some efforts in there and then back that up Saturday morning on tired legs with a long run. And from there, you can progress. Like, I know when I did UTMB, you know, when I could go out Friday night, do a hard hill session, um, and then follow that up with a two-hour run afterwards, so it was about a three, three-and-a-half-hour session, and then Saturday morning get up and do another four-hour hill session, I knew I was, you know, where I wanted to be for UTMB. So there's lots of different ways of combining things to increase the load. One thing I know we do with you, Ben, is obviously two long runs, one Saturday, one Sunday morning. Um, a similar kind of thing, it just gets that endurance in the legs. Um, a Sunday run's always done on tired legs, so... It helps build that fatigue resistance. There's, there's a number of different ways you can combine it, but you've always got to be thinking about how much load do I want to put on my legs? How much extra is this than what I'm currently doing? You know, things like, you know, doing a fasted long run that you might think that because it's slower that it's an easier session on my legs, but if your glycogen depleted, then it's actually an extra stress on your legs. Um, so you, you've got to be thinking about what extra stresses am I putting in my body and is that more or less than what I have been doing and where do I want to go? Do I want to increase it? Then I've got all these options to me. I can do a fast finish. I can do efforts. I can do back-to-backs, etc. Um, yeah, it makes it fun, fun as a coach and fun as an athlete doing these different things. Would you? I mean, sometimes I would give people a very different focus on their back-to-back runs. So, as we said, a lot of people mid-packed, backpack will will rely heavily on hiking. And yeah, you could go out and he's a four-hour run. He's a five-hour run, and it can be a mix of both. But but maybe on the Saturday, having a, a ninety-minute or a two-hour exclusively let's keep this all running from start to finish and then the next day then you can have an extended mix of hiking and running and so you have got you've still got that back-to-back and you're on tired legs but you have got this switch in focus between the two runs and giving them a different purpose depending on on you know 
where they are in the, in, in the block, obviously, but still, just get, make, making the two back-to-back runs very, very sort of different as well. And that can really um, also be a way to sometimes simulate some of the challenges mm. of a race. We'd look at two very popular races in the uh, Australasia region would be the uh, Hong Kong 100 and the UTA 100, both of them having a slightly more runnable, mm-hmm. for, particularly Hong Kong, where they have the, quite a runnable first half and then a very hilly second half that you can sometimes be that yeah. way that it's like, well, okay, we want to work on both yeah. of those. And so you can uh, sort of break up the long runs yeah, that UTA's way. Yeah, UTA's got a lot of runnable sections and I've got you know clients who are it's encouraging them to actually remember that you will be able to run some of this. So let's remember to be able to run because I think people do like to sit back and, and, and rely on their hiking and the hiking can be a really useful tool, but still remembering that you can run as good. And yeah, yeah. I, th- I, think, I think that can be important. Also, even even having that focus on, on, on those long runs as well, of as well, you know, fast finishes and stuff. But having one a long run that okay, today you're going to have you know an ascent focus. So every time you come to the ascent, putting a little bit more effort in. Or today is going to be a descent day. Let's have quads on on your, you know, after the first hour and a half or two hours, every time you hit a downhill, just put a little bit more effort on the downhills and and let's kind of focus on on, on the quads rather than just having that as a midweek intensity session somehow sliding that into your long runs as well and it keeps it interesting as well sometimes the long runs do just need a little bit of a just something to to keep your mind focused and again most important you should be having fun when you're doing it as well (laughs) yeah i'll often give people a um a focus on technical descending so Hmm. on the long run i say to them look when you find a nice technical kind of downhill doesn't have to be long could only be like two three minutes when you get to a downhill you think this is pretty steep and technical i'm not comfortable here just do four five six seven eight reps of that just up and down just kind of timing yourself getting an idea about how you can descend easier and quicker and more relaxed give them a few technique cues to focus on so as you said something it becomes a little focus point for the long run they're going to go out and search for this little technical section it just breaks it up and makes it interesting and you're trying to address like as a coach we're always thinking about okay what are all the aspects we can influence, you know? And, and I think downhill and, and technical stuff is one aspect that, that gets neglected in favour of, you know, the money sessions, they say, you know, threshold runs and speed sessions and hill repeats, but, you know, that'll get you only so far. If you, if you can't run downhill very well or you haven't got the quads to do that or, you know, as soon as it gets remotely technical, you're hiking and these people are just kind of barreling down past you, you kind of think, well, How all this here? fitness is just wasted. I'm, just, I'm walking when everyone else is running, like, why is yeah. that? Yeah, I think it's... Yeah. And one thing you mentioned there earlier, Andy, was fasted running. So I guess that's a nice sort of intro into nutrition for long runs. And should you be, yeah, fasting, should you be fueling beforehand? What about during the long run? How long does it need to be before you start fueling? Do you do your race nutrition less, more, all the benefits of those different things? So, yeah, Simon, I know you sort of, for you with that 250K run, you certainly noticed that uh, your nutritional requirements varied a little bit compared to uh, traditional yeah, sort of shorter run. So, so yeah, what, what sort of things there did you, what sort of things did you try there? And, yeah, perhaps that's a nice sort of intro to all of that. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's, it's one of those, certainly for milers or things where I've been racing and that kind of pressure's been on with time and, and, and you're running against people, what I've resorted to has been the classic things of you know powders and water and gels and all of those kind of very very quick to digest sort of nutrition things and I, and I, you know coca-cola and baby food and all those sorts of things which are going down very quickly but when i did this one i had realized very early on that 
I could actually eat anything. And it was excellent because it just felt like I could go for days and days and days. And I was literally putting wraps together with ham sandwich and avocados and cream cheese. And, and although that sounds like, well, that's quite heavy to do, but because the intensity in some of the off-trail sections, it meant that I wasn't eating that for every section of it. But when the intensity went down and the blood could return to my stomach and I didn't have it all on my legs, I thought, make hair whilst I can and let's get something in. Because I think psychologically, when you start thinking, when was the, it's so long since I've eaten something and you start to get yourself worked up about, it's, you know, I, my stomach's not feeling good. It's, it's hours since I've eaten. I think that once, when I could eat, and, and even if it's not, you know, the kind of that, that thing that I, you know, 250 of going through very, very slow, very, very technical terrain, if you are still able to step, if you're feeling it's difficult in nutrition, step off the trail, sit down, have some food. If you think that's going to be the game changer in your in your race plan and you're not able to keep going at full intensity and you're not getting anything down, it could be the end of your race. So sit down, chill, eat something, get something into your body at least because I think that if you are mid to back pack, it it's not a, it, it, it's very easy to panic and think this is it i'm going to be puking for the next however many hours you can set things right again you can it's a long enough time to be able to actually reset and get your stomach back in the game yeah. i think it's funny you and so that was some yeah as you said you were eating some pretty like dense foods and that was something was that something you trained did you train your gut to do that in or did that just something that on the day you, because the in, intensity was a bit lower in than, fairness no i did i did you suddenly went, i did practice it um i had been i had been working with somebody and I, and I was actually going out doing sessions with someone and they were a much much slower runner with me and then and, and it allowed me to to hike whilst they were running and whilst i was out doing these four hour five hour sort of sessions with them it allowed me just to pull some sandwiches out and some different types of food that i'd never ever tried before but it was that the intensity was lower and i found myself actually feeling hungry which often <laughs> often i don't it's i'm making sure i am just balancing how much energy is going out and how much is getting in but in this case i thought ah. Oh, I'm quite hungry. I could eat, and, and I think that's. I think if you were to be doing something which is over the the 160, over the 100 mile, it it depends, you know, on on the elevation. I mean, obviously elevation, possibly altitude. That's where you know when I did UTMB, that was an area that I found very very difficult to keep getting the calories in. Um, but again, I had a time pressure that I that I. I, I kind of let get to me a little bit and I think that was a, a, a game changer in a negative way for me so for this time I just thought yeah I could it's, it's interesting how you can play around with things a lot and as we always say it's a bit of an experiment of one because what works for me what works for you and what works for each of us doesn't work for everybody and it might not even work for you the next time which is the frustrating yeah, part okay, isn't it? <laughs> it's interesting yeah. looking at um, if, you, if you look at people with checkpoints in a miler for example and you see, you know, the first 50k people are generally in and out pretty quickly, yeah. and the last 60k people have taken hours at checkpoints. And you kind of think, well, maybe if they've taken more time at the early checkpoints and given their stomachs the chance Just, to digest food, then yes. they could have kept going quicker and longer and had less time at checkpoints later on. But I think we're all too king in the first. Know, 60k of a, of yeah, a mile, just, just keep, keep moving, keep, keep going, keep going. Yeah. And then, you know, by 120k, it's, it's pretty ugly at some of the checkpoints. Um, but I think Simon, that, that leads kind of in, connects in with well with the talk about can you go too slow in the long run? And mm. I think, you know, if you if you want someone taking twenty plus hours in a race, um, then 
it's possible you're going slow enough to have real foods. Uh, and some people can have real foods even less than 20 hours. But on a training run, the intensity you're going to be running a four-hour long run is going to be higher than the pace you're going to be running from 15 to 30 hours, for example. Yeah, yeah. So it's difficult to train that aspect. Like, you know, you can, you can take some sandwiches on in a long run and find out your stomach hates it, but you're running at a much higher intensity than you're going to be running yes. at 20-hour mark. So there is some benefit in doing a longer, slower run and just testing your stomach out. Just going, mm. okay, today I'm going to pretend I've already done 100K <laughs> and I'm going to do 40K at that kind of pace. It really yeah. did surprise me that because I was supporting somebody in their training, that my intensity was so low. I thought, and I just started eating and, and it did. It, it I would never have put myself into that situation in my normal training runs, but because I was working with somebody, it allowed me to accidentally experiment with it. And it was... It gave me a lot of confidence because I thought, hmm, this could work. <laughs> this is, this could work in the future. But I also think that different countries do different yeah. things. You, you, you're very, we, we're very, there's lots of glucose and lots of sugar and lots of sweet stuff. But if you go to Europe, it, 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 sometimes when you go into those aid stations, that's another area where the food can be entirely different to what you're used to. There could Plenty be cheeses, cheeses and meats and breads and stuff like that. And maybe, you know, that, that, that you're not used to that. That can be quite a big thing to, to get your head around. You go to Hong Kong, it's noodles and rice balls and yeah. stuff like that. Very different. <laughs> but I think, um, I think that is a, a good reason to do the very long run, which we haven't talked about yet and we'll discuss soon. But I think rather than do a long run, as I just suggested then, where you start super easy to replicate the 100 to 140K, you're better off just going out for one weekend where you're out there for eight, 10 hours, mostly hiking, a bit of running, and just testing nutrition. Particularly nutrition's an issue for you. Mm. Like, don't underestimate how badly your race can go wrong if nutrition kind of falls by the wayside. And yeah, every study that sort of looked at why people DNF or have problems at ultras constantly nutritionally gut issues is why people pull out and have bad races that it is always number one doesn't matter if it's a hot race high altitude various conditions gut is just such a big factor and as you said it will evolve that it depends it depends on intensity it depends how long you're out there what you like at four hours might not be what you like at 12 hours research coming out now showing how gut function changes overnight that all these different factors Probably, probably and a good, so ultimately, uh, I guess good thing to make a personally, it's yeah. <laughs> per- personally, it's been a big, big thing that have sort of uh, I, I guess there's sort of always been a few schools of thoughts of uh, do you train train the gut so practicing eating and that during your long runs versus as we alluded to earlier things like fasted long runs or not during not eating during the long runs so that you can supposedly try and develop your fat metabolism so that you can rely on stores and eat less and try and avoid issues that way. I guess personally, my experience and what I've seen, and this is also then what I sort of see in the research now, that if you're doing a high volume of training regularly um, and you can do, let's say you can comfortably do a couple hour long runs um, without fueling, you're a pretty good fat burner and you're now sort of pushing up for against those sort of marginal gains by trying to really focus and emphasize that more. Whereas there's then a lot of gains on the table by practicing that nutrition and practicing fueling 
that the gut is trainable like everything else and by practicing that race nutrition on a very regular basis sometimes perhaps even pushing it a little bit harder by maybe you know you're running soon after you just had a big meal and that and really challenging the gut there are so many gains to be had there as well as then simply by fueling these runs often the quality is a little bit better and the recovery is a bit quicker that uh being really depleted it, it can really leave your immune system that compromised and it takes a lot longer to recover and simply personally like a big thing can be i've done sort of the you know you do your marathon before breakfast sort of thing you're now late later in the day you've basically missed when you would normally have breakfast but you're in this ridiculously huge caloric deficit and now you're just having to basically force feed yourself to get in enough calories for that day so that you're not wrecked the following day and if you have to do anything later in that day you have to be a functioning human being again (laughs) being that depleted is uh not optimal no i agree i think once you can do a couple of hours um fasted uh, and feel comfortable with it that um, there's more gains to be had with um, training your stomach and getting used to nutrition. The problem is, of course, that you know with a four-hour run, what feels good for four hours can often feel completely horrible after eight, 10, 12 hours, um, which is why, as you said, Ben, training the stomach to do some different things. So you know, I probably wouldn't recommend starting off your gut training with having a bacon and egg fry after going out for a four-hour run. I'd probably suggest doing that to a one-hour run, like having, not necessarily bacon and eggs, but so having a, a decent-sized meal then going for a one-hour run, because that way, if it's really uncomfortable, then you've only got one hour to um, to put up with it. And gradually, as that gets more comfortable, you might think about doing it for, for longer periods of time. But then also trying, you know, one of the, one of the mistakes people make in fueling is they, they wait kind of two or three hours into the long run, then start taking fuel. And I think if nutrition is an issue and stomach is an issue in races, then I tend to suggest starting your fueling from minute one um, and get the stomach used to having fuel straight away and testing out different things. Um, and again, that applies for in the race as well. Yes. That don't, don't let yourself get depleted and then start yes. fueling. And, and also just having, particularly because carbs are usually the focus, that carbohydrate intake can... So obviously taking in too much then that also that does stress the gut but having carbohydrate intake does tend to reduce the damage to the gut while exercising so again you're actually although people might think oh i'm by taking in less i'm setting myself up that later my gut will be better ready to handle it actually it'll be worse off and less ready to handle it because it's more likely to have had greater damage inflicted during those fasted hours preceding it and a lot of the studies on the, on the fasted athletes in terms of um you know, high-fat, high low-carb. They all say, you know, if you're on a high-fat, low-carb diet, you are a much better fat burner, but you are a worse carbohydrate burner. Um, and vice versa, if, you, if you're on a high-carb diet, you're a great um, burner of carbs and not very good at fat. Um, so I think... But not necessarily. You can still be a very good fat can, burner, yes. just not, not as, as good, good as, as ones, the yeah. people who... That if you put all your eggs in one basket, <laughs> yeah. sure, you have a lot of, lot of eggs yeah. in those baskets, but it seems to come out, ultimately, if you have multiple baskets, you can hold more yeah. eggs. Yeah, I mean, when I was tested, <laughs> when I was tested, they, they put a high rate of fat oxidation is about 1.6, uh, and they say you know, on a high-carb diet, you're only going to do 0.4 or 0.5 or something, and I was 0.9, and I wasn't that particularly fit at the time, so it's a good balance between, you know, good fat burner and good carb burner and that's that's what we want to be really uh, and as you said ben you know doing a reasonable volume of training and then training your gut seems seems to give you the best of both worlds in terms of fat and carbs um 
so yeah, summarising on nutrition long runs, yeah, if you can if you can do a couple of hours fasted, then I think it's time to move on to race nutrition um, and training that regularly, consistently. And once you can do what you plan as race nutrition consistently and feel good, next step is then to try your plan B and your plan C race nutrition, which is obviously not going to be gels or sports drink. It's going to be something real food. Uh, and then after that, I would I'd then move on to actually specifically training the gut, you know, starting runs with a full stomach, um, just to just to tick all those boxes you can. So when you go into your race, you think, well, if my stomach goes south, there's not much more I could have done in training to prevent that. I, I, I've done as much as I can. Any further things I've missed there, either of you guys? No, I think it's the only thing uh, so that I think we touched on so much is fasted versus non-fasted that... Uh, again, if you are starting, so typically when people do fasted runs, it's that they have, they, they run before breakfast basically. And even then you might start fueling during the run, but you still started in a low, low state that overnight, the, the thing is sort of overnight, you don't, won't deplete your muscular glycogen. You'll mostly deplete the liver glycogen. And, and so you actually don't get a lot of the, you, you will probably still be burning more a higher percentage of fat than if you'd had a carbohydrate containing meal beforehand but you sort of aren't getting necessarily the same benefits as studies where you know you might do faster training in a different well low low carbohydrate training where you're for instance would do a high intensity session in the morning don't eat any carbs afterwards and then do a low intensity session in the afternoon when the muscular glycogen is already depleted which Again, it's sort of one of those things where it's coming out that yes, that probably does at least acutely. You burn more fat. It probably helps promote like you store more glycogen, but it's unclear whether actually over the course of months and years of training, if it's really that much extra beneficial compared to if you were just uh, you know fueling relatively normally. Yeah, I think. And again, so I think if you do like yeah. if you do a hard run Friday night and a long run Saturday morning you're probably not going to fully kind of top up your glycogen stores Friday night anyway. So you're going to be partially depleted at the start of your long run. So once again, it's getting the best of both worlds. You're getting, you know, some no. carb, taking your carbs so you get a good long run in, but you're already starting slightly depleted anyway, so you're getting some good fat burning as well. So I think, yeah, as you said, Ben, it, the, the extremes of either is probably not where you want to be. Um, and, no, and because it's, it's ultimately just not actually that hard to finish a r long run with low muscular glycogen stores that if you're running for two, three hours at a decent intensity, you're going to finish that run with low yeah. muscular glycogen yeah. stores. Yeah. All right, um, next thing I wanted to talk about is the super long run, the kind of the long run that we only really do once or twice um, in training, in prep for, for a big race. Um, Personally, I think there's, there's quite a bit of benefit in doing it if you can wing it. Um, for me, when I've had my best milers, I've gone out on a weekend and done a 8 to 12 hour long day, followed by a couple of hours the day before and a couple of hours the day after. Not everyone can wing a weekend away like that. Um, but I think if you, if you do something like this, you've, you've got to understand the purpose of doing it and not kind of spend all your eggs um, in that run and be smashed for weeks afterwards. It's got to be a super low intensity. I mean, when I've done it, like for UTMB, I lived in London when I trained for UTMB, and obviously it's not particularly hilly, so I didn't get any long hills at all in. So anyway, me and a mate went to the, the Welsh mountains, and we did 12 hours out, covered covered 30 miles, which 
know, 45, 50k in 12 hours. So it gives you an idea there was a ton of hiking in there. But we've got some good long downhills in the legs, a good chance to practice nutrition, good chance to practice gear. Um, and it just gave me the mental confidence that, okay, even though my long training runs are only four hours, I felt fine after 12 hours. I didn't feel like I'd done much at all, really. It felt very comfortable. So I think there's, there's merit in that really long training run, but I wouldn't, I'd, I'd never advise more than one or two of them. I just... And when would you time yeah, them I'd, relative to yeah, the A race? Really about six weeks out. So mm. if something does go wrong, you've got time to come back from it. I think three weeks is too close for the super long run. Four weeks is that mm, borderline because if something goes wrong, then you haven't got much time to get over it. But I think six weeks gives you a good amount of time. You can have an easy week the week afterwards, get back for another couple of hard weeks training before tapering again. I think it's particularly relevant for those people who can't train on terrain similar to the race. So, you know, I've got clients in Singapore, for example, doing mountain races. And obviously Singapore has one hill and it's not very high, but you know, they might be able to go to Southern Malaysia and find some decent trails. Obviously they can't do that every weekend, but they, they could do it, you know, once or twice. Um, or, you know, if anywhere in Australia, we haven't got big hills going to the Blue Mountains or to the um, Victorian Alps for a weekend and hiking up Feathertop and Buffalo and places like that, just to get all day out on the mountains and get confidence in your legs and your stomach is worthwhile doing it. But as I said, six weeks out is probably the ideal time to do that. Um, it's also a good chance to test gear, you know, test blisters, hot spots in your shoes, Get used to hiking poles, having poles in your hands for eight, 10 hours, see if you've got any blisters on your hands, pack with your pack rubs on your back. You now we've always had kind of you know, chafing in the middle upper back area. And you know, if you get that after four hours, it's gonna be agony after 25. But if you know that after an eight, 10 hour run, you can take steps to kind of address that. So, so I think there is benefit if you can swing it. If you can't, look, it's not a deal breaker in terms of training. Like I don't think there's that much physiological benefit from doing it yeah. i think it's more stomach psychological uh, and gear testing that you get the most benefit from that and so for all those reasons and you alluded to there with utmb where it's like okay you, you needed that confidence and that that you could uh sustain that distance if you're an experienced runner and you know that you've done this multiple times before do you think that they will still get as much out of those super long days? Or do you think, ironically, it's something here where a newer runner might actually benefit more from the, the super long days compared to an experienced I think a newer runner. runner would definitely benefit more. But then the flip side to all this in terms of being an experienced runner is, geez, it's a fun day out. <laughs> like, it's just good to get out there for 8, 10, 12 hours, you know? You're, you're fit. You, you know, you might as well get a chance to use it without any race pressure. Like, it's just a fun day out in the mountains. So I think even for experienced runners, you know, if they're not, if you're not on a location where you're, you know, you're running fantastic trails all the time and you're doing reps up and down Mount Cusa, for example, and you've got the chance to go down to Buffalo and run some decent trails, then why the hell not? You've got nothing to lose. It's a fun day out. And okay, the, the benefits physically may not be any different. And psychologically, you've done milers before, you know you can do it. You're not worried about the jump from four hours to 24 hours. So yeah, maybe not, but it's fun it's a fun weekend out that's stinks. and i know for me like yeah i'd say sometimes even if you can get close to the course it's nice to recce the course as well so sometimes i've particularly at the moment with covid and stuff i've got some people who are doing in in the uk doing hard mows and they've been in quite a heavy lockdown haven't been able to go anywhere lockdowns just relaxed a little bit in the last sort of three weeks and it's given people the chance just to 
go and do some of those sections in the middle of the hard mowers 110 and do some sections where they were a little bit nervous about doing it's extended and yeah just confidence fun enjoying but also just that safety of thinking oh, i've seen the course now i'm close enough to it so it's good to do a recce yeah. if you can get to the course well for hard mowers that's exactly what i did i i got the train up from london and i ran the course the whole course <laughs> over three days um Funnily enough, the time I took to run the course over three days was exactly the same time as I ran the whole course without stopping uh, six weeks <laughs> later, um, which I found quite interesting. Um, but yeah, space. because it's yeah, it was exactly race pace. Um, for those of you who don't know Hardmore's, it's a 110 mile race in the northern part of the UK. Um, it's not marked at all, so there's no there's no markings, there's no race marking. It's a it's a well established uh, walking track. Nash, uh, very easy, very easy to get lost on. Um, very easy to get lost on. Uh, so, it, you know, if, if you've got a race like that, I don't know some of the races in Australia, in Victoria particularly, have very few trail markings. So if you can yeah. get out and, you know, spend some time on the course, um, it's worthwhile, definitely. Yeah, Great North Walks isn't marked at all. The, the GNW. Yeah, it's another one. Traditionally yeah. was never marked. You just had to look for the National Park signs. And, yeah, it's, just part, it's nice to get a recce, get out there, do a long run and have fun. You're showing your age, Simon. We just upload the GPX track into our watch these days. <laughs> well, that's, that is true, actually, yes. <laughs> you go off course, watch goes beat. That is, although, and, and I do that now, but I, again, when I first started, I think doing GNW the first twice I did it, yeah, I didn't, did, and, and I think now that I'm do, you know, working with clients who it is their first time doing things, it is that, it, have you, do you know what a GP? and some people are, it, it's new technology to, inexperienced people although mm. it's been around for a long time but you are absolutely right now it's just oh it's moved off that line move to the left move to the right and yeah it's all deal, dealt with now <laughs> that that does assume that at the you know 20 hour mark of the race at three o'clock in the morning um massively sleep deprived you can figure out how to use your watch get it onto the right setting and then look at it and know well, what am i doing <laughs> oh your battery hasn't run out oh, look, and obviously <laughs> Yes, that's a big one when people are out there for 48 hours that it's really pushing the these watches you, to the limit and obviously not all of them. Because you've got the lead there and you're GPX ready, you're ready to, to, you know, to, to charge your watch from your power bank that's in the back of your pack. But it just takes you to take your, your eye off the watch for just a little bit longer than needed to and that bar suddenly goes and it goes into auto save mode. How frustrating is that? <laughs> <laughs> But um, in all seriousness, that's another aspect of, of, of races, you know, how many of us have lost hours in a, in a miler due to getting lost that could have been prevented by A, having better navigation skills uh, and B, taking a bit more time in a race instead of just following someone down a path as you go, I'm not sure that's the right way. I'm not going to trust someone I don't know. Just because they've said they've done the race three times doesn't mean they know where they're going. There's plenty of examples of people doing exactly that and the guy saying, oh, actually, this is the wrong way. It's like, well... So, yeah, if, if you're doing a race that involves navigation, practice some navigation skills now, with your watch, but also with the map because, as I said, if your watch goes blink and you've got no navigation skills, yeah, yeah you're going to lose some time. Which leads on to the next topic, really, which was gear for long runs. Like... Should we do the Killian and just kind of like tuck a water bottle into our shorts and go out for eight hours? Or should we take a pack with eight kilograms in it and four litres of water and enough food to last three days? Or what's the best approach here? 
I mean, it depends a bit on the race and what sort of pack race pack weight you're going to be racing with. If you're doing a race where all you need is, you know, one waist belt or one handheld bottle, then you probably don't need to be training with a big pack if you can get away with it um, in training. Distance between the Conversely, if you're doing races, like... <laughs> yep. Yeah. So looking at what are the requirements for the race, and that probably is a big dictator that if you're doing a race like UTA, UTMB, where they have fairly large mandatory gear lists, you should probably be used to having, to doing races, to doing, I mean, training runs with a decent pack on. If you're doing something like MDS, then uh, Marathon de Sables, then definitely you should be used to having a fairly heavy pack on because that's what you're going to be racing with. Yeah, you want to, you want to put the pack on a race day and not go, oh, geez, this is heavy. You know, it wants to feel like it's part of your body. So for that to happen, you have to do enough runs that it does feel comfortable. How many runs that is, you know, I wouldn't advise taking, you know, if your race weight pack is, say, four kilograms, I wouldn't advise making every long run with a four kilogram pack. But I'd say, you know, in enough time, like 12 weeks out, start using a four kilogram pack. And once it feels like it's just part of your body, then you choose what you want to wear. Um, but you just... Partly there can also then just be logistics of for your long run. So personally, for me in, uh, you know, training over summer where you'd be doing three hour long runs, I'm still taking 4.8 yeah. litres of water with me because that's how much I drink that's, in three hours say, yeah. in the Brisbane summer yeah. during a long yeah. run. And so it's like, sure, I would love to just uh, run around, you know, do some runs where it is light and fast. But logistically, that means I'd have to be stopping yeah. all the time and I don't like stopping. How good is that first run of winter when you realise you don't have to pack any water, you can just like put your shorts on top and head out the door and not have to worry about carrying anything. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's kind of pack weight. What about other gear? Like, when should we use poles? Should we use poles every long run? What are your thoughts on poles um, in races and training, long runs? Again, it depends really what you're doing in a race. If you're going to be racing with poles, then I think, yeah, as soon as possible in your long runs, on assuming the long runs are on similar terrain, which on which the poles are appropriate, then yes, you should be getting out with them regularly so that you become as efficient with them as possible conversely if you're not going to be racing with poles then no you really don't need to practice that because poles are a big one where you'll see people will suddenly get them last yeah, minute the and they're really not using them very effectively sometimes i think people will say that they're like oh yeah i felt a real benefit and you sort of watch them using it. it's like i think it's just because they slow you down so it feels easier because <laughs> yeah. you're going slower <laughs> But yeah, yeah. yeah uh, then you're just kind of tapping there on the ground next to you. They're just decorative. Um, as Ben will know, um, we run a, a training camp in New Zealand, um, and we usually get about ten or twelve people on it, and it's quite hilly terrain, so most people have poles. And most people who say they know how to use poles don't actually know how to use poles. The amount of people that we have to correct when they go left leg forward, left arm forward, right leg forward, right arm forward which if you think about it is the exact opposite of how you walk and how you run, it's completely wasting your time. So I think if you think you know how to use poles, then you should still do a lot more practice until you're really confident. I had another client who said, yeah, I know how to use poles. And I saw a race photo of him, several race photos of him. And in each one of them, he had the same arm forward as his leg. It's like, you're not using poles right. So I think if you're going to use poles, practice, practice, practice. And the other thing with poles, and people don't realise it, they think, oh, I should use poles in training to get my arms strong enough to use them, to get my technique better. Yes, you should. But if you've got poles, how do you get food out of your bag? How do you get water? How do you change your clothes? Now, do you have to stop 
get your hands out of the poles, put your poles down, get your pack off every time you want to do anything, or can you develop a means of doing that efficiently without taking your poles off? One thing I found really funny, like the one ultra I've done with poles, which was the TDS, so over in part of the Mont Blanc series, and uh, because I'd been training with them on Mount Kutha, where I have to, I, I, I only use them on the uphills, I stash them away for the downhills, so I'm only ever climbing for a few minutes before I have to then stash them away for a downhill. I was the most effective person at stashing my poles away <laughs> that I would, everyone else would sort of, oh, it's, you know, 400 meters of flat runnable. I'm just going to run with my poles in my hands still. I was like, no, nah, I can just whip them away way quicker. <laughs> so I'd be putting them away much more readily than everyone else. And they sort of fiddle around, hold, hold them in the hands and running a bit awkward with the hands that, yeah, you, that, that, that's another thing. Just practicing that putting away and then, yeah, how, how to feed yourself and that. And yeah, it can be a really hard one when you do, as I said, li living somewhere where, as I said, I was having to stash them away every few minutes. It's, it is much more annoying than if you live in the Alps and you get to climb for two hours consistently, stash them away, descend for an hour. That, that, that is really where poles come into their own is that sort yeah. of terrain. And yeah, when, when you're having lots of yeah short up and downs, that's not as ideal for them. But you know, you use it as a strength in that case that it's like, okay, it gets you very, very good at stashing them away and getting them out again. Because those little things, you know, 20 hours into a race, it's the little things that can, you know, in the first hour, barely bug you at all. 20 hours in, you feel like you want to grab your poles, throw them off the edge of a cliff or jump up and down and snap them off and never see them again because you're so sick of having to deal with how do I get my drink and food out and they're just annoying the crap out of me. So I think the more you can train that, and your poles should feel like an extension of your hands. You know, they, they should be that comfortable in there. So you, you're not even thinking about what you need to do. You're just doing it. It's funny that you mentioned the snapping it because I did also end up, so one thing people learned very quickly, carbon fiber poles uh, have a lot of strength and compressive, no torsional strength whatsoever. So I, I actually ended up snapping them by accident when I got stuck in a, in a root and just, yep, yeah, snap, bam, poles yeah. gone, okay. So you need to still be able to work without them because they may break. Yeah. Of course, I remember I was chatting after the race to Ludovic Pomerat, who has won UTMB. And so, uh, so I mentioned this to him afterwards. He said, that's why you have like three or four spares with your uh, crew. Because, of course, he's got a pole sponsor. Yes. So, yes. It's, yeah, that can be your, your backup if you have, yeah, four four pairs of carbon fiber poles <laughs> with your uh, crew for in case you snap them because it does happen because it can become quite a psychological dependency if you if you've actually trained a lot with them and i snapped my pole in the first yep. 5k of gser which is 180 k's and in the first 5k's coming out mount Buller, i it was snowy and it was icy jumped onto a tree to jump down legs slipped came down as you say the pole just snapped kindly luckily there was a kind guy who said oh i've got a spare pair of poles in the next aid station and bumped into him and he gave me a full set of new poles and um, which i returned to him um, but yeah i was for for about 15 k's in my head I, oh you start panicking you think I've, I, how am i going to complete this because i was really depending on the hiking section with the poles but yeah there can be a hindrance at times if you can't get them away quick enough and then um, i was thinking though towards the end of race when people's quads have gone and you are descending down quite awkward downhill sections which could be you know steps which are of uneven sort of sizes for some people 
regardless of their technical ability to use them, they can actually become quite a good crutch to come down with. When your legs are shaking, you can put some weight on that on that pole, and I've seen people using them relatively effectively because without them, they wouldn't be able to get down the hills. And, and for, for some guys, I think the poles can be really, really good for supporting the legs on the downhills, on those, you know, the large step, sort of rock steps that you can have coming down things when your legs just can't support when you're under one leg. I think the poles can definitely give people that sort of support as well. Yeah, on, on the opposite to Ben, when I did UTMB, um, I took the poles out after the first 6K kind of flat section um, and I put them away after I crossed the finish line. I had them in my hands for the entire time. Um, I use them on the downhills all the time. On, on rare, on the, on the kind of not that steep at all or slightly flatter sections, I just run with them in my hands. But for anything steep at all, I just flick them forward and, and use them to help kind of take the load off a little bit. Um, yep. I'm not as skilled or as conditioned as, as Ben's legs are, so um, yeah. I, I found them invaluable to preserving my quads and, and being able to run strong at the end of that. But once again, you have to train that. You know, if, if yeah. you're not used yeah, to using similar. poles downhill, they can just be a massive hindrance. You know, you start tripping over them type of thing. Yeah, um, uh, so you need to practice, yeah. practice, practice, practice. Um, anything else gear-wise for long runs, guys, can we think of? I, I, can I say I had somebody the day just mention to me that they'd never used a head torch before. And mm. something as simple as that. I just, it ben. dawned on me, I thought, oh, head, like we use head torches on an evening run. I, I do a, a local running group. It's, it's currently, you know, daylight saving, dark. So from six o'clock we go out, we, we're running technical trails, we put head torches on. Mentioned it to somebody recently, um, who I'm coaching and never used a head torch and it dawned on me that actually some people would need to experience that because and different head torches very you know small narrow large field of view how you can easily miss the side trail if you don't have a big enough torch yeah um, yeah it's it's interesting to uh, something I hadn't considered I've worn a head torch for years but well, some people never use them funnily enough Funny enough, if you if you talk to some elite athletes that have never done a miler before, they've never actually raced in the dark at all before. <laughs> well, yeah. And they uh, <laughs> they uh, they might need to do a bit of practice with the head torch. Not that you need much with the head torch. No, but it's just something nice. No, as someone who yeah, as as someone who wakes up with the sun, does their training all in daylight, and finishes most races before the sun set, which is much also a reflection of the distances that I've tended to do yeah for me that that is something if i'm doing a race and the handful of races are done where i know there is some night running that's something i have to specifically schedule into training is to do some night runs to actually practice running with the head torch i mean i years ago i yeah back when i was at uni and then i was i'd be coaching high schools and so i, I did my training at like 3 a.m for to um so i was always running with the head torch and i was very good with it and it was sort of years later that i sort of oh that's a skill that i've let slide because I just haven't had to do it for a while. So, yeah, it definitely is something of um, people need to practice because you do, particularly on technical terrain, if you haven't, your, your sense of uh, depth perception is very different because yeah. you don't have light coming from nearly as many angles. And so you will be quite tentative going downhill in particular on any technical terrain if you haven't practiced with a head and you'll torch. You'll see some people, the difference between sometimes wearing the head torch on your head and it's like having, you know, like you said, depth perception, not casting as much of a shadow, but then the difference between holding it in your hand can cast more of a shadow, and sometimes yeah. that can help you if you're struggling with depth perception. Um, but it, uh, when, when it, and also with uh, if there's fog. Oh. Yeah, fog. Because if there's fog, 
there's fog, your head right. torches, then just lighting up the fog right in front of your yeah. eyes and you're blinded, but if you take it yeah. and hold it in your hand yeah. to lower it down, then you don't get that same effect. Same so those are little tricks which you don't learn there. unless you practice. Yeah. 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 But even back in the UK, it was getting lighted. Doesn't get, I'm in the northeast of England when I went back to visit my parents. It doesn't get light in the morning till 8.30 in the morning and it's dark by quarter past three. Training without a head torch is quite difficult when you've only got about six or seven hours of light. <laughs> so it depends where you yeah, are in the world. The, um, yeah. the first, the first uh, miler I did, um, I got to kind of th- two weeks before the race and I thought, I've never run in the dark before. Um, so I better train that. So living in London, it didn't get dark till like 10 o'clock. So we went out to the pub yeah. for the night. After we came home at like midnight, I then went for a run around Regent's Park. And I actually went to, to run in Regent's Park and went to climb over the fence. And there was a big busty security guard there next to the American Embassy with a big Oof. rifle. I said, oh, mate, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't climb that fence if I was you. Okay. Okay, fair. Okay, I'll just stick <laughs> to the roads then. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that was my first experience. Yeah. 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 yeah, but there are other factors as well that, so we mentioned, you know, people might be training at a specific time of day and so they need to think about their race, what sort of lighting conditions will they have to run in. Another big one can be temperature, that if you're living somewhere cooler and you have to race in the heat, that's something you have to prepare for, and vice versa. Oh, yeah. If you live somewhere warm and suddenly have to race somewhere cold, can you still undo the zip to get your gels out when you're wearing gloves because it's cold? These are things that you, you want to find out beforehand. So, again, that, that's practicing. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, from, a, with from gear. a gear point of view, it's easier to go somewhere cold than race somewhere hot because you're just wearing a tank top and a pair of shorts and that's it. Obviously, it's harder to manage in terms of body temperature and stuff. But from a gear point of view only, going if you train somewhere hot, going to somewhere cold, then, yeah, it's a, it's a whole level of experience knowing how hot you can let you get your body before you take layers off, how cold you can let you get your body before you put layers on. How do you get a gel out of your pocket when you've got gloves on and you're holding poles running downhill on technical terrain? Like, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the problems people have is, particularly on those big, not so much in Australia, most Australian races because there's, you know, the hills aren't that long, so there's always time to grab nutrition at top or bottom. But in some of the bigger European races, when a downhill might take you an hour and a half and up hill four hours, if you think to yourself, oh, I'll just wait till I get to the bottom of this hill before I get my nutrition out because I don't want to stop, uh, you know, because I'm running and I can't get my nutrition out with gloves and poles and everything. It's like, well, that's an hour and a half of no nutrition. And then all of a sudden you're playing catch up and then two hours later your stomach's gone south. So practice, 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 knowing how to change, getting used to those changes of, of gear um, is really important, really, really important. Uh, and something that I, I see too often, people getting too cold or too hot uh, in, in races because they didn't stop to change their clothes um, in time. I, I Two years ago, doing the, the Bob Graham round in the UK, um, the day that I came to do the actual the round itself, it was one of the hottest days. Um, it was the hottest May, May bank holiday on record, but the training for it was during that time that they referred to as the beast from the east. I got frostbite in like well my thumbs and two fingers on both hands because I couldn't keep warm enough Um, try and again trying to get anything to work and it was a mountain biking well my brother-in-law who does a lot of mountain biking he he said what what other guys do there put latex gloves beneath so if you haven't got expensive gloves and fancy gloves and because what I was climbing up sections with there was snow melting and my hands were soaking wet and there was a you know a real strong cold wind I was absolutely freezing cold and since then, if it, 
doing UTMR like Monterosa and things like that going through Clos Gracias just put latex gloves underneath any pair of gloves and underneath them not over the top of them it is like almost having like wetsuit material it, once the water gets through it stays warm and they were doing 24 hour mountain biking races and just a pair of latex gloves underneath is a absolute brilliant hack if you don't have <laughs> fancy equipment just have it because they weigh nothing they're super small you can have a couple of pairs in, in, in your pack and if they rip just put some more on but they absolutely have saved me subsequently on numerous occasions but I still when it gets cold can't feel the ends of these fingers <laughs> genuinely <laughs> all right anything else on gear guys I think we've covered a fair bit on gear so the, the last kind of thing before we summarize up is just those other factors that um, affect your long run and when you might do it which is time of day heat altitude um, and it's just you no know, for a lot of people they don't really have much choice in when they can do the long run they're, they're limited by family and other commitments that there has to be Saturday morning between 5 and 10 or Sunday morning between 5 and 10 um, but if you have got a choice of when you can do your long run what kind of factors influence when is the best time to do that long run so I think as we sort of talked about earlier there where it depends a bit on what are some of the challenges you're going to have to face during that race that if you need to do that night time training then it's going to be while uh the sun is down if you know that particularly if you're going to go race somewhere hotter than what you're used to perhaps you need to practice running a bit in the middle of the day to get that experience of running in some hotter temperatures um altitude's one thing though where it really will depend on what's available to you that that's tends to be very geographically limiting that uh if you're going to go race in the alps or something it'd be really nice to do a good three-week block at altitude but that's usually not an option for people yeah i think um i think we gotta be careful in terms of time of day i think people can go too far one way like if you're training for a race it's going to be hot that doesn't mean you should do all your runs in the middle of the day um, you, you, your runs are going to suffer if you're, if you're running between you know, 11 and 3 in, in the heat of the day your runs are going to suffer compared to running between 5 and you know, 9 in the morning um, and I think you have to balance up between the quality you get from your run versus the heat adaptation you get from running in the middle of the day and find a bit of a balance between the two um, and then there's also the timing of that because something like heat adaption you get a lot of bang for your buck in the final few yeah. weeks that it, it a lot of the main adaptions occur on a time scale of a couple of weeks yep. and they also yeah, disappear okay. after a couple of weeks. So it really is those final lead in weeks is where that wants to be the main consideration. You don't need to be, you know, nine months out doing every run in the middle of the day in a sauna suit. <laughs> exactly right. I'd like to see that. <laughs> um, sleep deprivation training. Is there any benefit to training um, to be better at being sleep deprived? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. Probably, in yeah, it's again, we were alluding there before about uh, quality of training, quality of recovery, and that, that that's going to be have a huge stress on the body. And look, anecdotally, some people seem to find it is something a bit trainable, that if they're working, people who work night shifts, for instance, and regularly have to deal with that seem to be a bit better at it. But probably the amount you have to do to really get much benefit is probably not worth it that you're just going to be compromising training and you're better off arriving just well rested and having had good sleep and good training in the legs that it's not something i would advise and of course it's one of those things where 
a lot of people will just naturally um, have to do some yeah. sleep deprivation training by accident, as I say here to two parents. Um, <laughs> that, it, But even as someone who doesn't have kids, uh, sometimes your social life yeah, exactly. might cause you to occasionally have some uh, sleep deprivation training by accident. So it's more about just getting used to training under all, all conditions, and it will probably happen from time to time. So we've, we've talked in depth about a number of factors that influence the long run, but I thought we'd just kind of finish this podcast by just summarising a few of the main take-home points for people so they've got a good starting point of um, where and what and how and et cetera the long run should be. So let's summarise it in context of three different distances, 50K, 100K and 100 mile. Um, so first thing to quickly look at is duration. What kind of duration are we looking at is going to be optimal for those three distances? Boys, what are, you, what are your thoughts? So 50K, it's going to depend a little bit on how fast you're aiming to finish that 50K. Obviously, some people can finish the 50K under sort of four hours. Uh, others taking considerably longer. But uh, ballpark figure probably for most cases would be around three to four hours, probably closer to that three hours for... Faster runners perhaps tending to a little bit more towards that four hours for people who are taking a bit longer, which may also depend a bit on the type of course they're racing on. Yeah, you'll probably find the, the actual terrain or distance covered uh, would be roughly the same um, for a three-hour faster runner versus a four-hour slower runner. It's going to be ballpark, you know, 30-ish K, um, 35K. I mean, when you look at it from a marathon point of view, most marathon training programs have your long run at about 35K as your long run, give or take a few k. So I think that's that's a good starting point. Simon, 100k runs, any differences there, do you think? For 100k, it's similar. I think what what I've had people do, you know, about keeping it round about that four hours as a as a maintenance for most of the, the, the training block, occasionally throwing in a five, maybe one or two, five to six hour runs, um, depending on experience, which we've already spoke about, you know, you might want to just put that extra one in there, more from a mental confidence or, or you know, checking of, of, of kit and things like that. Yeah, yeah there's, not, there's not a lot of difference between a 50 and 100K, but I think um, chucking in a couple of longer mm-hmm. ones can really help. Um, and just, just a fraction longer on your long, your kind of week-to-week long run is probably worthwhile. For 100 mile, again, I don't think it's that much difference because it comes down to what you can really handle on a week-to-week basis. For most people, that's about a four-hour run. But it's probably more important to chuck in a few extra six or longer long runs for a 100 miler just to get that time on feet, just to test a whole lot of things out nutrition-wise, gear-wise, get that confidence mentally as well. So a couple possibly of, working in some yeah, more back-to-back out. long runs. Yes, yep, definitely. Either yeah. back-to-back or longer or mix of both depending on what your body can handle and what you've got um, in terms of available time. Um, just, just got to think about how you can create some extra endurance on the, on the legs without sacrificing the following week's training um, too much. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of terrain and vert for the long run, where, where do we start with um, how to work that out then? So ballpark figure again, starting at approximately similar sort of vert per K as the race that one is aiming for. And then as we sort of discussed, there will be cases where you might want to dial that up or down from that sort of figure. And what would what would kind of determine whether you'd want to do less vert or more vert? Do you think, like, just quickly summarising that for people? So obviously, always what you've got available is a bit of a factor. Yeah. If, you've, <laughs> if you've only got flat terrain and you're training for mountains, well, you're still going to have to do flat runs. 
But if you've got available whatever you want, then you might do a bit flatter if you want to actually spend more time actually running as opposed to hiking. If you are training for a really hilly course where there might be a lot of hiking, you might still need to practice continuously running for extended periods. So that could be an argument for going a bit flatter. Conversely, arguments for going a bit hillier would simply be, well, if you're training relatively flat most of the week because of geographical restrictions, then you might want to, perhaps on the weekends when you might finally have an opportunity to get to the mountains, that might be the time that you dial up the vert a little bit more. I think also some people kind of you know, tell me they haven't got access to any decent vert. Um, and Ben, I, I sometimes use yours, uh, um, Strava, as an example. And you know, if someone in Brisbane says, oh, I can't get more than 500 metres of vert per 10k, there's... You know, the hills aren't low enough. Um, well, actually, you can. You can uh, get double you, that. Yeah, exactly. you just got to pick the right hill and do enough reps. Um, I know when I when I trained for UTMB in London, I was doing a, a hill that took me 90 seconds to go up, and I do 100-plus reps of that. So I think some people just aren't, either haven't considered doing reps like that to get the vert in, or mentally that's just too mind-blowingly tough for them to do. But I think it's worth definitely worth considering if, if you live in a fairly flat area um, and you think you can't get any vert, you know, there are ways to get vert in um, if you're prepared to do the reps um, up and down. Um, I don't think the amount of vert really differs between a 50, 100 or 100 mile. I think it all just comes down to the race. My only caveat to that would be in the, in the longer races when you might have some really long downhills. Um, and you can't do that in training because you've got only short hills. It might be worth doing some flatter runs to get used to running for long periods of time without stopping for a hike. Um, so I think uh, just keep that in mind when you're looking at what your uh, vert per 10K will be. Now, distance-wise, um, pretty much the previous two factors determine um, the distance. Like if you've picked out, you know, you're going to run four hours and you want to run um, you know, 400 metres vert per 10k, then that pretty much defines how long you will run for, how many kilometres you will cover. But are there any other kind of factors or, or kind of considerations to make when we look at distance and our long runs? Boy, any, any thoughts there at all? Anything come to mind? Because I've got a couple. I mean, one thing can sometimes be a bit of a confidence factor that sometimes uh, people can really gain a lot of confidence from hitting some nice sort of round number, which is such like, you know... It's kind of funny when you try and like think about it objectively because there's no reason why a 40-kilometer run will give you particularly better training adaptions than a 39-kilometer run. But mentally, it can be a really um, <laughs> big plus that you had that four out the front that when in the race, you're in the 40s. You're sort of like, yes, I've done this in training. Um, so, yeah, that, that can also be a big factor. Sometimes just hitting some relatively arbitrary numbers, but uh, it certainly, yeah, the mental game is super important. One of the things I hear from people, particularly those starting ultras, is they come from a marathon background and think, well, in a marathon, you know, your long runs need to be, insert figure, 60%, 70%, 80% of the distance, i.e. 30, 35, 38K, depending on what training plan they've read. So does that mean I have to do 70K long run for 100K or 120K long run for a miler? Of course it doesn't. Um, and you know, learning that the actual number doesn't matter that much if the training load is sufficient. But having said that, like if you're doing you know, a regular four-hour run with the appropriate vert that, you, that your race has, you know, UTMB, for example, 600 metres vert per 10K, but you're only covering 20K in that four hours, I think there's benefit in going longer um, because if, if you want to run 
you know, 170K, let's say you hike half of that, you still want to run 85K. And if your longest training run is 20K, and of that you're hiking eight of that, means your longest actual running distance is 12 kilometres or 13 kilometres and you want to run 85 with 85 kilometres of hiking, you're probably going to come up short. So I, I think sometimes you've got to look at how much running you're getting in your long run and think, okay, well, I'm actually only running half of this. Um, I can probably handle a five-hour run or a six-hour run almost every second week if I'm doing that much hiking in it. Um, someone like yourself, Ben, when, you, when you, I give you a, a four-hour run with 500 metres vert, you're running 99% of that. So there is no need to think about going longer. But I think for those towards the mid and back of the pack, um, thinking a little bit about distance as well. I mean, I usually go by duration, but I think sometimes you've got to look at the distance you're doing in training in terms of how much running you're doing and what you want to cover in the race and try and, you know, just get a, a bit bigger percentage than maybe you're doing currently. And yeah, so really that's what you tied in earlier with when we would use a five to six hour yeah. or a seven, eight hour long run versus also when you would perhaps work in a bit of a flatter run as well, that that can be a way that it's like, okay, if the kilometers are well below what you might sort of, well below say 30, if you're not regularly hitting sort of close to 30 with those sort of four hour plus sort of runs, then that would be the times that we start looking at, okay, do we need some yeah, longer runs or flatter runs to get those Ks up? And of course, it also depends, and we talked about this earlier, it also depends on how much kilometers you're doing for the rest of the week. Now, if you're only doing 60 Ks uh, and your long run's only 20 Ks, then you know, you're probably lacking, you need to bump up that long run. But we all know of some of the elites who's, you know, they're doing uh, the spine challenge in the UK and um, 24 hour race and 48 hour races and their long runs 30, 35k, um, but they're running 100 miles, 200k or more. So you know you've got to think about how much vert or how much sorry how many kilometres you're doing per week as to whether you can get away with a shorter long run or you need to go a longer long run. Um, but we talked about that uh, in a fair bit of detail earlier. Simon, before we finish up intensity, kind of what do we think are some really good take-home cues for intensity uh, for the long run? I think I generally speak to most of my people is is yeah all day pace that feeling of it's getting that confidence of just knowing how you can find that rhythm that pace that you want to run for your like you say for that mid pack which is the majority you know like you say yeah we've got this you know the elite at the front but the majority of people who are running these races are it's finding a, a, a comfortable pace that they know they can maintain going out slow enough that you can maintain it for the whole day. Um, and doing that in your training so that you can actually just dial that in and you know what is comfortable. Um, we've talked already about going out too quickly and people you know, doing that death march towards the end. Um, it's, it's to try and get that dialed into your training, isn't it? And just going out all day pace, nice and comfortable, knowing that you can, you can hold it. Yeah, that's spot on, spot on. And for those who have power meters or some other means of determining intensity, about 75 to 80% of your threshold uh, is a good starting point for, for working out that. Any final thoughts, boys, before we wrap this one up? It's been a, a very in-depth chat about something which you know, most people might think would cover in 10 minutes. We've talked for two-ish hours on it. <laughs> any, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap this one up? I guess the final big one is just consistency is key that when we sort of throw out these numbers and that we're talking about doing these sort of week in week out for you know yeah. m- months at a time and that and that ultimately though 
it, it's that consistency that matters so much more than what is your longest long run or anything yeah. like that that if you are just able to keep putting in the miles week in, week out, that is the most important factor. Yeah, 100% agree, mate, 100%. Simon, any, any concluding thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree and say patience, just being patient, um, not trying to go too hard, too long. It's, I think, a lot of time trying to hold people back along with consistency. Just know that you will get there and if you can keep the consistency going, just be patient for sure. Yeah. <laughs> And that's just you know, something as all three of us coaches, um, we do a lot of the time is trying to hold people back a bit because they, they want to get up to four hours long run. They're only doing two hours now or they want to go longer. And it's just a matter of finding that level that you can be consistent week in, week out. Whether it be that two and a half hours or three and a half hours or whatever it is, finding that kind of range of volume and, and long run and everything that you can do week in, week out is going to make the biggest difference. I mean, you look at, look at the elites and they are just consistent week in, week out. They don't really have that much fluctuation um, in their training. Um, mind you, they're lucky because that's all they do sometimes uh, is they train, particularly in, in other sports like marathon and stuff like that. But consistency, if, if you take home nothing from this whole two hours, consistency in your long run, week in, week out, is, is going to get you the best results possible. Well, thanks very much for that, boys. It's been a, a pleasure to talk to you both and uh, delve in deep to this. I look forward to the next podcast where we're going to chat about Right in and tell us what we're going to chat about. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Let us know. If, you, if you enjoyed this podcast, let us know what you'd like to, um, us to debrief and discuss and, and, and analyse in depth and uh, we'll add that to the list. Until then, best of luck with training and racing coming up and we'll talk to you all soon. Bye.